Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. My name is Josh Lyons. I've been listening to Hardcore and Punk since 1995. I have book shows, put out a fanzine, run a record label, and now I'm doing a podcast. This is the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. Welcome to episode 24. As always, you can find us on the internet at enterprisehardcorepodcast.com, on Instagram at enterprisehardcorepodcast. Uh, today we got a, a special guest on the podcast, uh, a good friend of mine I've known for most of my life. Uh, as most people listening to this podcast have probably heard me reference him uh, on several episodes. So we'll probably be telling a lot of those stories from that era as well as uh, some stuff that he did that's pretty notorious uh, afterwards. Uh, but I'm talking about my good buddy Ben Keefe. Uh, so how you doing tonight, Ben? I am fantastic, my friend, and thanks for having me on. This, this is fun. Yeah, you know, I'm, I've been excited about this. I think you and I have been talking about this for a couple months. Um, so this should be a real good time. Um, I know a lot of people listening to this know you, and a lot of people might not, and they probably heard me mention your name. The people that don't know you have been like, oh, who's this guy? So it should be kind of fun, kind of, uh, you know, crossing all those uh, things off so people know what we're talking about at that point. So, um, But before we start talking about the bands and all the other fun stuff, uh, kind of give everybody just like a background information, like, you know, your upbringing, where, where you're from, and all that kind of stuff. I am from the beautiful city of Rochester, New York, which, uh, as, as listeners who are from the area probably know, the Flower City, two meanings of flower. Uh, yeah, uh, so I grew up in Rochester, kind of uh, in the initially in the uh, area around uh, Strong Hospital, so um, and then eventually moved over more to, to the Clouds uh, Hill area, again, insider baseball here for anybody who knows the area of uh, Rochester, but... So I uh, ended up going to Catholic schools all the way through until uh, I think junior year of high school. I went to finally went to a public school, but up until that point, I had gone to Catholic schools. And as listeners might be interested to know, I got to know you in the uh, in middle school, attending Catholic school together at uh, Siena Catholic Academy. So um, yeah, that was my that was my upbringing, and then uh, ended up spending my college years in Buffalo, going to Buffalo State, which I was interested to hear that Hex went to Buffalo State as well. Ryan uh, Hex, who you interviewed on your most recent episode, and also at Jeffers, I believe, did, who you interviewed in one of your early episodes. So, uh, yeah, I spent those college years in Buffalo and uh, definitely was heavily involved in the, uh, the music stuff happening there at that time. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people I've interviewed, I guess, have gone to Buffalo, some like you from Rochester. Um, but I think we're going to kind of step back just a little bit first, because uh, your introduction to hardcore and punk is actually pretty much the same as mine. So I think a lot of listeners will be interested with this episode to kind of hear all that. So uh, let's kind of go back to, I guess it would be uh, Mr. Coleman's homeroom. Uh, rest in peace, Mr. Coleman, too. Uh, we are in eighth. Yeah, we are in eighth grade. Um what kind of got you uh, started on it first, though, for people that aren't familiar? Well, I was always jazzed on music from, uh, no pun intended, from a pretty young age. I mean, I remember my brothers and I, I've got two brothers, we got a copy of uh, Grateful Dead, uh, <laughs> Grateful Dead, Greatest Hits, Skeletons in the Clo- from the Closet, I think it's called, uh, probably around when I was maybe like nine or ten. And we were into that, and then we got the other Grateful Dead rec- uh, tape of their album Working Man's Dead, which by the time I got into punk, I was kind of embarrassed by that. Now I love the dead again, you know, and I don't, I, I'm 
run out of fucks to give, you know, altogether. But, uh, yeah, so by the time I was in seventh grade, when I first, so just as a little note here, I remember you, Josh, were in my class in seventh grade, and I had not gone to school with you. Like, a lot of the kids that are in middle school, I had gone to school with all the way through. But you were new in seventh grade. And I remember having a science class with you, and I didn't know you at all, but I thought I kind of thought you were a dick. Because you did this thing where you, every time you answered a question, the teacher gave you praise. You did this thing where you rubbed your chin. Yeah, yeah you're doing it now. Listeners can't obviously see the, the video, but yeah. You did this, like, rub his beard, imaginary beard at seventh grade, you know. And so for some reason, I was like, oh, what the hell is this kid's deal? But then in eighth grade, yeah, Mr. Coleman's homeroom, who, who unfortunately, uh, he passed at a really young age, like in his 50s, uh, cancer. But um, he was this hard-ass, how would you describe him? He was like a... You know, like a hard ass but nice. Yeah, he was really funny because, uh, like, he he would be like kind of like you're saying, like you would think he'd be real serious, but he could laugh with you too. Because one time you came into homeroom wearing one of those stupid like football band aids on your nose just for whatever reason, and he he like had a smile on his face, but he was like, "Hey Ben, take that thing off," you know. So, but he was cool, you know. Right. Um, he was kind of like strict but fair yeah. and funny. Yeah, I remember because the NFL at the time, a lot of these guys were wearing the. <laughs> thing and it was just like such it seemed so dumb like why like, does that really do anything it's just so and i wore it in the yeah the home room i guess i was like keeping attention or whatever but uh yeah that was funny uh so anyway yeah in terms of punk and hardcore um at that point i think in about seventh grade i think i had i had a sonic youth tape of their record dirty which is random but they have a song on their uh cover of the untouchables from flex your head nick fit it's like a minute long, just like a real raw, you know, like early hardcore song. And I remember listening to that tape on my Walkman and thinking, for some reason, connecting to like, is this punk rock? You know, that, that cover by Sonic Youth. And I, I remember asking my dad, who would be really the last person to know anything about any of that stuff. But I remember being like, hey, dad, listen to this. Is this punk rock? And he like didn't have an answer for me. <laughs> but uh so I always kind of was seeking that stuff out. I remember in uh, eighth grade that I started getting like into kind of like uh, watch that documentary on PBS about rock and roll. No, that was actually later. That was ninth grade. Sorry, I scratched that. But uh, I remember just reading stuff about punk rock in like music encyclopedias and stuff. And I ended up getting out some tapes from the library, Rochester Public Library. I remember it got uh, Iggy Pop tape, Brick by Brick, I think it's called, or something like that. It kind of sucked. It was not good Iggy Pop. And then it was uh, Ramon's record, um, End of the Century, which is not really one of the more punky ones. You know, like who made it? So that was, I was kind of digging around and looking for it. And then when we were in class together in eighth grade, this is when I really got immersed, like started digging like the Dead Kennedys, uh, Black Flag, stuff like that. And then I, I don't know, your listeners maybe do or don't know this if they know you, or, but you were like this uh, man about town at like, at 13, 14 years old, you were, uh, if you don't mind me saying, you were this kid who had, you know, your home life was such that you kind of just got to do your thing after school. Like, you just got to, like, leave the house and just go do whatever you wanted, pretty much, it seemed like. And so you were, like, just up and down Monroe Avenue, which is, uh, for people that are not from Rochester, is kind of like the cool strip where, like, the record stores were and the little funky shops and stuff, the punks used to hang out. Josh would like roam up and down Monroe Ave after school and meet all these older people who are musicians in local bands and get to know them. And then he'd come back to homeroom 
and be like, oh, yeah, I was hanging out with this guy, Rob Filardo, or, you know, like, whoever. And then, so early on, you got me into a lot of, like, the local stuff, like the Quitters, local Rochester bands, like Thunder God, Tilka, uh, Nod. Remember, you making me, like, a dub tape in those early days. And uh, I was listening to, the, like, the famous, you know, 70s and 80s stuff, and then you were turning me on to, like, the local Rochester bands, which is sort of how we got to first gel with that stuff. Yeah, uh, well, first of all, I think it's you're definitely the first person that's come on here and said that one of your introductions to uh, punk was by getting tapes in the library. Uh, I'm sure Greg Benoit from Rochester Hardcore History will really appreciate hearing that. Um, but yeah, no, that's what, and actually him and I talked about that at length too. So anybody who's listening to that episode too, you're going to hear this again, I guess. But yeah, no, growing up around Monroe Ave was really cool. Uh, as you kind of alluded to, there was a, a real diverse mix of people. I mean, you had a lot of punks and people like Rob Florida that were in the music scene, but you also had like a lot of hippies and just interesting people. Uh, I know Kevin Wilcox and I talked about Oxford Square a little bit on his episode too. Um, I don't know if you have that as much now. I know Monroe F still has people kind of floating around, but it seems a little seedier now where it's not really as much of like a, I don't know if you'd call it like a melting pot back then or something like that, where you had like the whole scene. Like I remember uh we'll, we'll we'll kind of fast forward in a second but uh like a year or two later after the, the era you and i were talking about like i was just walking down the street and like mike balsh was like oh you have a fanzine like you you wouldn't see that kind of shit now where people are just like walking up and down the street like you know what i mean just like it's, it's just like totally different now i feel like you know um but yeah so you and i were kind of feeding off like mixtapes and shit like that and then um a good friend of ours uh josh yonkin at the time who we ended up playing a band with a year later you him and i went to like our first local show together in june of 1995 which i i talked again to kevin wilcox about this too it's interesting because like the scene that we were getting into at the time was like more of like a bar rock like something you would get into after hardcore and punk and i think because it was accessible to us at the time like there was a few hardcore bands around here but it was more accessible with me living by record time and Rob Florida booking the Freakazoid shows that summer, like we kind of saw all the trash can stuff floating around, but that was still a really fun time going to that first, like seeing all like seeing live stuff like that, where it's like, you know, no barrier. And it's like more of like a local type thing, like for the first time, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, Josh Yonkin, you know, and I don't know, I haven't been in touch with him for a while, but, he was a kid that was like into actually that was my first time reading maximum rock and roll was at his mom's house in like 95 or whatever i was sleepover and i actually got drunk for the first time at his mom's house uh you know for what it's worth uh <laughs> i remember when it was been the same night but we were hanging out he had he was kind of like into this underground culture stuff he had um crazy videos he would get his hands on back in the vhs days you know like just exploitation film like weird like horror and just just weird stuff and he was uh also his family life was like his mom was this i don't know if you remember but she was like a workaholic who kind of left the kids to their own devices so they had the run of this house it was like this big house but like they got to do whatever they wanted it was like this pig pen uh no offense if she's listening <laughs> it was just a freaking pig style but it was like uh the kids you know it was like that movie uh What's that movie with Christina Applegate? Don't, mom, the babysitter's dead? Or yeah, something? don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was like that. It was like chaos, dude. And uh, But he turned me on to all of this stuff, and he was into this punk stuff early. I remember the first time I met him was in math class in whatever, seventh or eighth grade. 
he walked in with a Spawn t-shirt, you know, the comic book. And he sat down like the desk, the desk next to me. I'm like, hey, man, that's a cool shirt. What's Spawn? Is that a badge? He's like, yeah, it's a badge. <laughs> <laughs> but then we got to talk to music and stuff. It ended up being, you know, but And so that first show that we went to, I think one of, one of our moms dropped us off. The thing with you is you were like in a neighborhood that was right basically down, you know, next to downtown. So you could just like hoof it everywhere. Yeah, but that was, that was still like a mile or mile and a half. You think about being like 14 and walking like a mile, like, like back then it didn't seem like anything, but now like that we have kids, we'll get to the fact that we have kids later, but like, it seems different now, like walking that far. But anyways, you know, like you were saying. But you were at least close enough where you could do that, where like this place was out, my my house at uh, at the time actually was probably three or four miles away and his place was further. So we had to like get a ride to that club, Freakazoid. It was a daytime show and that's just so exciting, man. Like just like this new environment you've never been anywhere like this people who now we look back and be like oh they were like way younger than us and like just fuck up kids basically seemed like adults uh at the time and there was all this this cool music happening like you say it was like the garage rock thing kind of like uh shop quest squares played i remember that were uh kind of blew my mind at the time and they were sort of doing like you know a mid-paced like garage punk kind of thing but though it turns out those dudes had actually been in bands, or at least John Schoen, the singer, had been in a, like a crossover thrash band. So they knew their shit. So like you say, that was like something you graduate to, quote unquote, after punk and hardcore. But that was our introduction. But I feel like we kind of got immersed in all that. You know, it's like just this hodgepodge. And, uh, you know, just you get excited by it. I remember uh, Trash Can Records had an LP called On the Verge of Breaking Even, which I still sometimes think of. Randomly, is that's a great freaking title for a for a record on the verge of breaking even. But it had a, just a mix of various uh, sounds and stuff on it. It was the cover was the cheapest thing. It was like literally glued on to the uh, cardboard LP uh, kit like cover. But yeah, that's awesome. I still think I would wonder what happened to my copy of that. I still have mine downstairs. Um... <laughs> Yeah. So what's interesting is, is yeah, we, we went to that show and that when, and when to put, to put a time frame on it for people that are listening, that was like June of 95. So that was like, we were going into high school at that point that, well, well that summer we would have been. So we kind of had a summer where we kind of had gone to that show. And I think we probably each went to a couple other random ones. And then like that, when we, when we started high school, well, I know, I knew you had played guitar before because, um, I had these friends in, in my neighborhood that, that you, you knew one of them mutually, Nicole Strait. Um, and I would hang out at her house. Some What's that? Dr. Nicole Strait. She's an MD now. Yeah, yeah. Definitely shout out to, to I guess, Dr. Strait, I guess you would say then. Or however you say that. Dr. I don't know. Um, Dr. But so you knew her. So you would call her house just to fuck around sometimes. And you like called her and played some stupid song on the guitar in like eighth grade or whatever. But it was like funny, like some kind of like like dead milkman or some kind of type shit like that, you know, just like a goofy like type song. So you and I had talked about like, like maybe doing a band uh, around that time anyway. So I kept that in the back of my mind. And then in ninth grade, I was going to a different school than you too, but we just all, we ended up just deciding to do this band. And, um, you know, usually I tell, when I talk about this band on this podcast, I usually say this band was pretty terrible and it's not really worth talking about. But I think on this episode, we're going to talk about it a little bit because as you and I were kind of prepping for this interview, we were kind of going back and forth with some funny stories. You know, we only played like eight to 10 shows and pretty much all of them have like some pretty funny 
So backing it up a little bit, the original name for the band, um, it probably wouldn't fly too well now, and I doubt we would start a band called this now. But initially we were called the Filthy White Devils. Um, I want to say we played our first show at McQuaid with that name too. Um, is that is that that sound about right to you or? I, to be honest, I don't remember. I remember going back and forth with like different names, and I don't, I don't remember what name we. I don't think we played with that name at McQuaid because I don't think that would have flew even back then. Uh, I remember looking at you know I don't even know if the internet was really a thing yet. I remember looking around whatever sources I could look at. There was some McQuaid power band called Blue Eyed Devils or something, and I remember being like, hey, yeah, we probably should kind of stray from that. Don't <laughs> get too close to yeah. to that. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we did play our first. So just just a real quick backup. I remember we were in homeroom, and I remember there was a kid that uh, we, <laughs> what <laughs> I think his name on Instagram and stuff is Bruins Band New York or something. Dan Latender, he was this kid. He was a real like diehard sports nut. You obviously are. I remember you guys would talk sports, and I'm a you know not a sport big sports guy. I like sports and it's entertainment. I watch sports and follow it. You know, cursory kind of thing, but I'm not like diehard like fantasy guy or stats guy you guys would talk like real serious hardcore sports and stuff but i could never really hang you know i'd throw in my two cents i was like always kind of like yeah okay okay and then when we talked music it was always like you and i you know were eye to eye on music so and we had our friend in homeroom brian murray who it turns out was a drummer and i remember we talked about forming a band and this is around the time when uh you were getting super immersed in just the local stuff or whatever, and we were doing these tapes or whatnot. And Brian was not into music at all. He was basically just like a, like a jock or like a regular kid. But I remember him saying, yeah, I'll play drums in your band. And he drew a picture of a hypothetical band, like a group, you know, before we started, with the bass drum with a hole in it, with the dick hanging through, like long enough to get through the hole on the other side. And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's our band. And then somehow... Like the fall, like late fall or something, of the next school year in high school, we started that, started jamming at his house. Yeah, it was November. It was November of '95 because, as I mentioned in the Bill Page episode, I broke my arm crowd surfing at an Elastica concert uh, in November of '95. And at our first like month to month and a half of practices, I had a cast on my arm. Um, Dude. I totally remember that because I, I remember the cast now. You're bringing that back all of a sudden. I didn't remember it until now. But I totally remember that first practice because it was freezing cold and like real cold, like unseasonably cold, even for Rochester in November and uh, probably in the 20s or something. And running from the car that my mom was dropping me off at his house. And uh, his house, just, just this is irrelevant to anybody except Rochester. It's just a fun thing. They had like a basically an in law suite, like an in law apartment over the garage. It was separate from the rest of the house. That was his bedroom. He had his own entrance, his own bathroom, and it's like like room for a bunch of friends to like just crash out and sleep over. So that was our space to jam. And his parents also were like completely kind of like with you, like you were allowed to just roam and do whatever you wanted. His parents seemed to seem like were just totally checked out and let him kind of do his thing. You know, it's weird. I never at the time because I was a teenager and I was just kind of doing my thing. I never realized like you're mentioning this now, like a lot of the people we were associated with at the time were very similar, kind of not a lot of guidance, um, possibly something for us to kind of keep in the back of our mind as parents, as our kids, uh, enter those teenage years eventually. But yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, they were great, 
people. And I'm not saying anything negative. I just it was like sort of like they never checked in. You know, it's like if my kids were like 15 and jamming, playing music, and whatever, I'd like just do a you know random you know spot check, like just pop in there, just quick you know. I never remember that happening. Like you basically could do whatever the hell you want. I remember they uh, had a you used to have a big flag day party, which is a funny thing to, <laughs> to do, but. Uh, I remember their big flag day party. They would have like a garbage can full of beers with ice or whatever. And then like a couple days later, whatever was left would still be in the thing that just warm. And we went over there one time. I don't know if you were there. But we slept over and there was a bunch of Jenny Cream Ale uh, warm. <laughs> like Caesars, I think. Like three or four of those. Holy shit, man. That was, uh, that was like the worst hangover I've ever had. That was like a you know 3%, 4% beer. But... Anyway, so yeah, we jammed over there, and that's how we we started. Eventually, the band. Do you want me to talk about the? Yeah, well, I want to throw in because I don't know if you're gonna mention this part or not. That we were a punk rock band, but like, I I still am not really. I know about music, but I don't really know. I I, I think the term is bar chords or power chords is what most like punk and hardcore bands use. Yeah. But we didn't do that in in, in Bob Barker. This is actually yeah, we didn't even mention that yet. The band ended up becoming right. be called uh, Bob Barker and the Womanizers was the name we mostly used. Um, you used all like what do you call those like open like E like open chords, like yeah, regular yeah. So like, I said, like G C D E yeah. as open chords. I, I don't know what I was. I think I'm kind of like musically autistic or something. Like I just don't get like you know the obvious shit that most people pick up on. It's like oh this is like first of all like sounds cooler more like metal or more punk and almost easier. I never, I never did that. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm shit as a guitar player, but I, uh, I did all open chords with my uncle. We'll get to this at some point. My uncle, who's like this redneck uh, musician guy, who lives out in the country, he came to a show we did on Christmas night in '96, or I don't, I don't know yeah. what it was, but uh, downtown Rochester, and I remember him watching and. Uh, and being like, hey, you're playing those cowboy chords, man. That's cool playing those cow. He called them cowboy chords. <laughs> so, why not, right? Yeah. So they were all like, like, like open, like six string chords, like all like most punk and hardcore bands use like four strings, or whatever. I guess some of them play all six, but a lot of the times, you know. Um, no, not really. And we had, and we had ridiculous. You wrote a lot of the early, most of the songs, but a lot, a lot of the early stuff was all you. We had like "School is Fun" was one of the song titles. Um, <laughs> we covered, uh, speaking of your redneck uncle or whatever, we covered a song, like a country song. What was that? I came from Georgia on a fast train, some shit oh, like that. Oh yeah, yeah, that was like, a, I think that might have been like a Charlie Daniels band song or something. Yeah, that was, but that was actually him who first introduced me to that song because there was a guy named uh, Sir Mountain Fiddler. Who lives down in like Anianta, New York, or some bullshit, and he would play up in Rochester, and we had this tape just by through my uncle or whatever, and yeah, it was it was on there, so we covered that. Yeah, I wrote a lot of dumbass songs. Yeah, school is fun. The lyrics were like, school is fun, school is fun. I always get my assignments done. It ain't no bore. It ain't no bore. It's more of a pleasure than a chore. Yo, imagine now that you're, which again, we'll get to this in a second. Well, not in a second, but later in the conversation, you being a teacher. Doing these Zoom, these Zoom teachings. Imagine if you just opened up a teaching session playing that song on the guitar. What those kids would probably say to you, man. <laughs> um, yeah, oh yeah, man. I mean, I looked at a lot. Of, I found a lot of smart ass stuff. My mom had somehow hoarded and saved all this stuff from years ago when she bought a box. I think I might have shown you something. She dropped off a box at my house last time I visited, and uh, 
there was just such ridiculous shit that I wrote when I was in like seventh, eighth, ninth grade. It was just sarcastic shit that I turned in as an assignment and it was graded by the teacher. And I'm like, I cannot believe. Like, what would you do with a kid like this? I wrote a thing that was like a two page description of like a really idyllic uh, Christmas scene, you know, like the Christmas tree and the mantle and all this stuff. And then the children in bed, like, waiting for Santa. And then at the end, they, they left a bear trap for Santa in the, under the, in the, you know, chimney, under, like, under the mantle. And the teacher was like, oh, the writing is good, but the end, bah humbug. And I'm like, what the, like, <laughs> why did I get like <laughs> But, uh, yeah, the lyrics are off just stupid like that. Yeah, just, uh, the whole idea was to just be, like, anti-punk, like, do everything, like, we were into punk, but my whole thing was, like, do everything that's totally yeah now that you're talking about it and you mentioned the dead kennedys before i feel like the sarcasm of jello biafra probably had had a little bit of an influence on it at the time too uh would be uh something i would at least have to put in there you know because it was pretty oh yeah that was a huge that was probably my first early first band that i got super into was dead kennedys in like seven uh eighth grade i guess yeah like super into them listen to all their records and uh totally idolized jelly b opera yeah yeah 100 and then uh you know there was even one thing that got me more into hardcore was their record yeah the more thrashy songs which in the american hardcore book he kind of trashes kind of says like oh that's really kind of sucker i can't remember he said that about them or the misfits maybe both but he's like, you know, they did the thrash thing, like that kind of took away from their original sound, which was cool. But for me, at like 13, 14, I, that just charged me up, you know. Yeah. Got me more into it. So we were referencing uh, playing at McQuaid early on. So that was the first show that we played. It was late March of 96. Uh, it was kind of like a Battle of Bands type deal. It was, it was uh, this one band, I think they were called like Mental Defective League or something like that, with dudes we were friends with. Uh, like Henry Carter and a few other people. Um, but what was funny about that show that I, I meant, I mentioned in the Kevin Wilcox interview briefly is that before that show, like you had mentioned, I kind of knew Rob Filardo a little bit, I think already, but I didn't really know like Joe from carbon records or any of those Hilka guys, but I just kind of like, uh, similar to what Jay Galvin referenced doing in his episode. I just wrote these dudes all letters and I was like, yo, we're playing this show at McQuaid on like March, whatever, 96. If you guys want to come check it out, that'd be cool. And they weren't there or anything like, well, you're setting up and everything. But then all of a sudden, right. When we were getting ready to play, I could see like Alex from Hilka with his bandana and fucking Joe and Nuge. And I think all, I don't know if all the thunder gods were there, but I know Rob Filardo and, um, they all had cool names at the time. I think Pat was a singer, but he went by like thunder bunny blue uh, oh, Jim- yeah, Jimmy. Yeah, Thunder. Jimmy. Thunderclap Jimmy. He was definitely there, you know. So. Dude, it's funny you say that because memory is so funny, so odd. You know, I don't remember any of that. I remember uh, playing that show, and it was at McQueen Jesuit, which is a private Catholic school for all boys. For anybody that doesn't from here or from Rochester, but uh, we played in the cafeteria, and it was like, you know, at that age, you're super charged up. You know, it's like that feeling of just total adrenaline and. Get up there and you play. And all I remember, man, is walking out and having a bunch of my classmates be like, dude, that was fucking sick. Like, that was so awesome. That was horrible. And yeah. Now I just be like, dude, that stuff is horrible. And, uh, you know, just that, just four or five kids that were like kind of friends, but just being like, dude, that was fucking sweet. You know, <laughs> slap me on the back and stuff. And, uh, yeah, 
that's so weird. Think about being. I mean, those dudes were probably like twenty. Yeah, I think that I think some of the Hilco dudes might have been like like late college age, and then Falardo and them had to be like like mid to late twenties by then. Yeah, so, so you know. those dudes are like twenty two to like yeah twenty five. Yeah, showing up at a high school battle of because some kid wrote you a letter is fucking hilarious. Yeah, and also the fact that uh they that that you wrote them a letter and they lived like a few blocks away. All those dudes must have lived off like Monroe Ave or Park Ave. I mean, they must have all lived literally within like a mile, less than a mile from you. Well, I remember. Dudes wrote them letters. It's, it's just classic. I remember they lived on Oxford at one point because when we were in Bob Barker, I was singing into like this shitty like forty or however many watt amp that I had bought at the trading post. It definitely wasn't like a PA or anything, and I would yeah. turn the volume up all the way so I blew out the speaker. And we we knew I did it, but we I, I still called or wrote Nuja letter or whatever again and was like, yo, can you look at this real quick? And he did. And he was like, yeah, you need a new speaker. So I took it to sound source and eventually got the new speaker. But, dude, that was the other thing, too. I never had a car, so I'm, I'm lugging around this fucking heavy-ass amp, like, all over town, oh, yeah. like, to Oxford Street. Like, we talked about riding the bus to a show one time, too, with all of our equipment. Remember that? Like, we were like, Bob Barker should just fucking... That, though, no, because how would we have gotten the drums on there? But we were like, dude, we should have... The whole band just ride the RTS bus to like one of our shows. Oh, or we used to come up with so many like little fucking ideas like that that are just just ridiculous. But some of them we did, and actually we'll get into that at, at, uh, later. But um, yeah, that's hilarious. First of all, it's just hilarious that those dudes would humor a kid who's fifteen or yeah. kids that are fifteen. Um, I can't imagine. I mean, well, I guess I when I was in my twenties, I guess at punk shows, I I, I would chat with kids that were you know teens, but. It's just funny. And then uh, I do remember walking from Brian Murray's house down to the pawn shop on Monroe, I think, to buy an amp. Maybe, I don't know if it was for me or for you to sing out of or what, but um, I remember walking down there, like, carrying it, you know, like the three-quarters of a mile back or whatever it was, just open it. That would have probably been my vocal amp, which, again, was bought for, like, 20 or $30 at uh... – <laughs> A pawn shop on Monroe Ave with some sketchy long hair dudes. Um, so there were some other interesting shows. We ended up playing with Hilka uh, for some girl that I was dating at the time who had a mohawk. Uh, it was her birthday party at um, remember that place above Club Z. We played oh, that. Yes, I remember that well. Yeah. Yeah. It was like them and Sinker. Um, there was another show. Was, What's that? It was okay. So it was downtown. This would be like a really dead part of downtown that was like there was nothing really there at night and there was, was there a club down there uh st paul street on and off had clubs and, and at that time it was above a club club z was what it was but called that was that, i don't think anything was happening there that night because i don't remember people being around uh, probably probably, was, probably not was sunday night or something yeah probably not it was either a saturday night yeah our, our drummer's mom who just let kids do whatever dropped us off with the drums and all our shit and we set up and we played but for some reason, my mom, I don't know if we had lied to her or whatever, but for some reason, she got wind of the fact that we were down there. And she got super pissed off and decided it was going to be like a parental moment. And they got there. We're hanging out with all these older people. We weren't drinking. We were all straight edge and stuff. We weren't doing anything. But they came in and they were like, you have to go now. And we were like, no, mom. <laughs> <laughs> and she like dragged us out of there, like basically by our ears, not literally, but pretty much made us leave it was super embarrassing and uh i don't even know how he got all the gear out or whatever but it was like she must have convened with my stepdad was like they can't be down there it's you know 10 o'clock downtown and 
and dragged us out, which is pretty embarrassing. I think I was probably pretty mad about that at the time. <laughs> I want to say for the record that I definitely would not have left with you guys. I would have stayed and, and left on my own accord later. And and just for, so people know, the place that we're talking about is the same loft on St. Paul that uh, One King Down played at when the window got smashed by the uh, full stack. Uh, I, I don't know if I, I – I feel like there's at least one or two episodes I've referenced that on this podcast, and it's definitely like – there was a few shows in the in the mid to late '90s here that were kind of notorious. That one, uh, maybe a couple more that we'll get into later. We'll see uh, how juicy we want this uh, interview to be or whatever, you know. So, um, but yeah, no. So for being a really crappy punk band, we played um, on some pretty good bills. We, you know, we ended up uh, that later that summer. I booked a show at like. It's had like 20 different names. I don't even know what it is now. It's, I don't even think it's a bar anymore. It's like some weird restaurant maybe on the corner of uh, South Clinton and Goodman. At the time, I think it was called uh, Colors. It, it would have been Friends and Players at one point. Yeah, um, yeah Friends and Players Pub originally. Yeah. I think Colors, uh, maybe when we played. Yeah. It is. A, I actually looked it up not too long ago. I don't know why I would look that up. But uh, my dad always had a story. He had some friend that was in like a cover band or whatever that played there. The guy's pretty straight-laced, you know, like, he's not, definitely not a rocker. And he had, like, a leather jacket, like, the smooth leather jacket. You know, not the cool one, but, like, the smooth one. And he went in there to see his friend's band. He was in the in the can, and people were doing coke. And he always talked about that. He's like, oh, that's a coke bar. That's a coke bar. <laughs> and he came out in some drunk thing, and I'm like, sir, are you a member of a law enforcement agency? You know, so ever since then, I always had that in my mind. In this place, you know, people that haven't been there it's like it's tiny it's like the size of you know your, your kitchen you know whatever but we played there we played uh we played the penny arcade remember that with danny down the syndromes i think the l beeman uh, band played that one too if i'm not mistaken yeah i definitely remember that yeah yeah that, yeah yeah they, i think they did we played uh the tea house uh with some ska band that, that was back like when that tea house story i sorry to cut you off but that's a that's that's a really funny story um our band, as we've referenced more than once, was really terrible. So I, I, I had gotten a hold of a few bands through Book Your Own Fucking Life, which was out of Maximum Rock and Roll, like a thing to like book tours and meet like punks and stuff. So I had a few demos of other bands from like different cities and shit that nobody here would have known of or whatever. And one of them, one of them sounded kind of decent. So I mailed it to the Tea House and said it was us. And I was like, "Can we play? Can we play on your show?" And we play with, and, and, and you know, did it with like the professionals or whatever. But yeah, that's how I got us on that show is by sending them a, a fake demo or whatever. So yeah, that was hilarious. Uh, yeah, we just played. I mean, part of the thing was you were just so networked with the, which I think is a lot of how relationships happen. I mean, opportunities happen in all realms of life, um, not just with music stuff, but it's about networks and it's about personal relationships. So you, I think, the fact that you were sort of this like free roaming kid or uh, free range kid. Uh, you just knew a lot of people, so it's like people would kind of throw you a bone, especially when a kid is like 15 and they're just starting out with their band. Everybody's been there. So a lot of people will just give you a shot, even if you know your band probably sucks. <laughs> or if you send them a tape of another band, it's just hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Remember, remember, well, we'll get to this later with the Noise Project, but we used to make uh, flyers for our tapes of different projects and put totally different bands. Oh yeah. We just take like some random fucking underground metal band from like uh, Brazil or something. Yeah. Like, that <laughs> yeah, because there would just be funny pictures of them wearing like stonewashed jeans or whatever. Yeah. Uh, like, long hair and... yeah. 
I mean, Bob Barker only played like probably two or three more shows after that. But the funny thing you're talking about, about like networking and shit that I had kind of totally forgotten about you when you talk about you going through a box of stuff, which again, as I've referenced on a lot of these episodes, we've all kind of done that during this, uh, kind of lockdown or whatever, you know, what, if you're in lockdown now or still whatever situation we've had in the last six months, um, you sent me a picture. We had played what was called the Turkey jam out in Churchville. Um, <laughs> and I actually, I kind of remembered it cause I took my driving test there a couple of years ago, but Snaggletooth, uh, which was a band from Rochester that definitely was not like hardcore punk at all. I don't even know what you would call them. Um, but they were good dudes that I was friends with and, I, and I'm still friends with at least one or two of those dudes. If I saw them now, I, you know, but anyways, it, it, the, the scene here was so diverse back then. I don't know if every city was like that or not, but like you would have shows like that where like Shotokan, us fucking, you know, Snaggletooth might play lethargy, like Danny down. Like it was different. And again, I'm not, people listening to this might not be familiar with those bands, but you, we're talking like hardcore punk metal, like a weird, Pop like, punk. yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it was Definitely. a, I remember playing, so that, that, that I got a kick out of, that was one of the things my mom saved. I don't know where the hell she got this stuff. Or, I mean, she's not, she's not a hoarder at all. She's very, you know, neat and all that stuff. But she must have had just bins of shit organized in the basement somewhere all these years. It was a clipping from the Democrat and Chronicle, the Rochester paper. Uh, and it was Turkey jam. It was 10 bands for $2. And it was literally like a, one of those picnic shelters that we played. And it was out in, like, the excerpts, not even the suburbs, like, in a hall out of the city, like, you know, 20 minutes or something. And it was, uh, I remember playing that show, and I remember, uh, well, I'm not going to say the person, because I, you know, I said this about any, anything, it could be a felony or a uh, whatever, but I remember a prominent person from a local band that we used to get a real kick out of all his shenanigans. Did you threaten somebody with a knife at that show? Uh that's definitely possible. I, 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 like, again, you always say I have a ridiculously good memory, but now we're going back like 25 or so years, and I did kind of uh, fracture my skull last year. So some of this yeah, stuff yeah, for me, sometimes, it. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that show, for some reason, I don't really have much of a recollection from that show. When you sent me that that picture of it, I was like, holy shit, we did play that, you know? But Well, you know, my recollection was only a couple things. One was like uh... – uh, handing out flyers, and you were doing a show, which we'll obviously get to this too. <laughs> you were doing a show that was coming up the next like week or two after that, and uh, became very infamous. But I literally had like five flyers. I don't know if you gave me five flyers, or I like maybe if I had a Kinko's card that only had enough to make five flyers. <laughs> I don't know. It was for that show, and I gave them out to like five people, and one of them ended up being Pat Dent, who we're not really friends anymore. But uh, if you listen to this, hey Pat, love you, buddy. Uh, Bad Bolger, who was in a bunch of bands, but um, that kid was sitting there just kind of awkwardly, like, doing his own thing, and I gave him the flyer, and it was a show that had Lockjaw on it. Bill Page, another great dude, Bill Page, who we talk about a lot. <laughs> uh, but I gave it to Pat, and he went to that show. It was like, you give out five flyers, and if one person, you know, goes, that's a pretty good uh, proportion of, you know, pretty good ratio. So... My only other recollection was I think the person that I'm referring to, I will not say by name, uh, but he was a funny dude, full of braggadocio or whatever. He pulled out a knife and was like swiping it at somebody and like being like, come on, motherfucker, like, you know, the 1950s, like New York City gangster. And everybody in the place in the picnic shelter was like gathered around in a circle. 
and then it ended up just nothing happened. No one got stabbed, but uh, I remember that vaguely. That's uh, also a good segue. As you said, we're not going to mention a lot of names. I mean, granted, Statue of Limitations has probably passed on a lot of stuff, but we're not going to mention a lot of names on a lot of stuff. But this era that we're talking about, and this is something that I think about now, too, because, like, and again, this is something we'll probably get to later with the current events type shit, but, like, going to all these protests recently, like, yeah, I'm going to them because I, I'm for the cause and I support it and shit, but it kind of took me back to those old hardcore days where I was like, yo, there's this sense that some shit might go down tonight. You don't know how it's going to end, and it's kind of interesting, and it's part of what kind of... It's definitely with, with the, like we're now we're getting more into hardcore now, like ninety six, ninety seven, like you and I, like I know you like as we'll get to you you and I kind of listen to like different kinds of what you would call hardcore, but at the beginning we were going to a lot of the same kind of shows, and there was always just that sense like, I I don't think you or I ever felt unsafe except for one show maybe one and a half which we'll talk about in a little bit but like, it was always kind of fun because you we we'd have so many crazy stories to tell after, but it was always yeah. just like were these young teenage kids hanging around like at the time what seemed like men, but now that we're a little older, <laughs> we realize they were like in their twenties or whatever. And now it's like, right. you know, not men, but young, young men for sure. Yeah. Who are also by, you know, the same token, they're the most violent and dangerous uh, demographic, you know, young men, you know, that's where they're warriors. There's a funny video of uh, Roland talking to some kid. Uh, you've probably seen it, but it's like some kid who's, like talking shit, he's way out of his element. And Rollins and uh, Greg again uh, are there, and he's just—he's like, "Look at you, man! You got a mohawk. You're like a warrior. You're young." Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But that legit is is true. That's why you know you draft 17, 18 year eighteen-year-old kids into military service, or, or not necessarily not draft now, but you know, uh, enlist them because they're 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 warriors. They're impulsive. They're hot-headed. They're but yeah, I think that's a big, big part of the. Uh, I mean, part of the thing with adventure is adventure has to have a, uh, an element of danger to it, right? So you don't go. We're we're like kind of inundated with video games and action movies and shit like that. Most people don't have any real danger or adventure in their lives. At least most like middle class people. But uh, that's part of the appeal. Is there is if you have an adventure, there's the chance that something bad could happen to you. It could be really bad. You know, so. I think that's kind of one of the elements of uh, attraction is punk and hardcore. Is you're going to a place where there's an element of surprise and danger and the unexpected, and something bad could happen. You know, usually it doesn't, but it's always right there around the corner. And I think that for a young person looking for, um, you know, stimuli and for something more in everyday experience, that's kind of like what draws us to it, what drew us to it. And what and what and kind of going along with that. There's two shows that kind of stand out to me that summer, um, and I don't, I, I don't know how huge of a, I know one of them you're not really a huge fan of, but both of these bands were, were, it was one show you went to with me and one show I went to by myself, well not by myself, I went with Ryan Wade and, and probably John Olick, and what's funny about this is it was the second Warp Tour, and, and my mom knew about it, but she wasn't going to let me go because it was in Buffalo. So I just lied and said I was going to hang out in, like, Webster or some shit for the day, which I never did either, you know. So I think she probably knew I was really going there. But I went there, and um, I want to say they were the last – if they weren't the last band, Snapcase was one of the last bands to play that day. And it was, like, outside in the dirt, and you see all these dudes with, like, bandanas on, which would be normal now, obviously. But back then, I was like, holy fuck, these guys all have, like – 
these big dudes again they look like men to me they're all like swinging their arms and going crazy and shit and i'm like holy fuck this is nuts you know kind of keeping that in the back of my mind for the rest of the summer and then you mentioned in the whole straight edge thing um you definitely had a hoodie a chicago cubs hoodie that you either wrote drug free youth or straight edge youth <laughs> or some shit on but there was yeah. also we would go scumming like which for people who aren't familiar you jump in this really nasty eerie canal um, we would do that all the time in the summer. Um, you climb up, you climb up a structure. One of the like, uh, I don't even know what they. Well, it depends. Locks. Sometimes there were bridges. We went to different spots, but there were like usually a bridge of some type. And yeah. You climb up there and jump into like this brown water in the Erie Canal, and uh, that was that was actually really fun. Actually, not to cut you off, what you're saying, but there was a uh, that first Syracuse heart. Hell, it wasn't called Hellfest yet, right? You you talked to Hex about this. Yes, Syracuse three day fest. fest. Yeah. Something. The one they did at is it Hungry Charlie's? Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Song? Yeah, it was Hungry Charlie's. Way, yeah. That 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 uh, fest we went to, I think, when I got back, the, like the Sunday or whatever, at the end of the fest, we found out that somebody had been hit by a train on one of the bridges that we used to go scumming off of. So. And. Uh, it happened. My brother and another friend had gone there to go scumming, and the cops were there, and the kids yeah. got like, stuck on the bridge. It was me. It, it was me because it was that Friday. You were in Syracuse, and I rode my – or no, I didn't go. I was at work, but I heard I, – I think we had gone there the night before, and then I heard about it that day, and I was like, oh, shit. There wasn't any cell phones back then, so we didn't know if it was Matt that had gotten hurt or whatever. And then I was talking to you oh, about yeah. it that next day. But but that's like a year ahead of what we're talking about. So, so like late summer 96 – we got a bunch of people. We went scumming, and then at the, and I don't know if it's still Seven Eleven, uh, like Rory or one of these Fairport people. I don't know. Actually, they don't live in Fairport now, but somebody in Fairport might know if it's still a Seven Eleven out there in Fairport, um, out by uh, Fairview Lanes, which uh, in the Bob Barker era. I guess. Yeah, I guess we haven't told that story yet, but we'll get to that in a second. I want. I want to. Um. So we. We we stopped at a Seven Eleven and you and I both X'd up. We got we put, put the fucking huge X's on our hands, and we went to go see Dead Guy, Times Up, and Lethargy at Water Street. Oh, also, don't forget Forward Now. I think which had yeah. Aaron, uh, Nichols from what was the uh, he's a bunch of bands. Yeah. What was the one I saw? Defeat, uh, Defeatist. Oh, is he? Is that's one of his newer bands you're talking about, probably Defeatist right? Defeatist is like yeah. a tech crime band. He yeah. Was, yeah. Anyway, that was I remember that. Yeah. Actually, was a very memorable Sonic. Uh, memory for me was that band. Anyway, yeah, go ahead, though. Yeah, but we went to that show that night, and that was one of the... That kind of coincides with that Snapcase moment where seeing just, like... Dead Guy didn't show up that night, and again, you talking about me having, like, free range to do whatever the fuck I wanted to do. Like, that night, I basically... You had to leave early, because Water Street shows always... It was a bar, so they would go to, like, 1 or 2 in the morning. So Lethargy didn't play till super late that night. I think it might have been my first or second time... I had probably seen Lethargy a few times, but this was one of those nights where it was like, it was like a hardcore show, so there was hardcore and metal people there. So there's just people going nuts for Lethargy. And at one point, people, some. I'm sorry, sorry to cut you off, but people who are not like local uh, Western New York people who might be listening to this, Lethargy had two of the current members of uh, Mass. Yeah. yeah. So they, they, they got fucking huge, those guys. But Lethargy at the time was like a local yeah. favorite who were like tech, you know, tech. Yeah. Friends. And most people are familiar with Eric Burke, you know, Nuclear Assault, Calabas, and but I mean, where I was going with that is, is at the end of Lethargy set, uh, somebody like flipped the light on at Water Street, so the house lights were on, and it just it was like totally bright in there. And I was just looking around the whole fucking floor, 
everybody's just going nuts. And I'm like, yo, these are the kind of shows that I want to start to see, you know? So that was around the time where we started really going to more like hardcore shows, you know? Yes. Um, it's funny also you say that the, the band Times Up played were from New Jersey. I don't remember much about their actual set, but I remember the singer was wearing the t-shirt of Human Remains, who became a huge influence in terms of grind. You know, very shortly after that, when I started to really immerse myself in the grind stuff, uh, I remember just thinking, like, oh, Human Remains, that's a fucking sick name, dude. Like, And then, you know, always connecting that the guy's T-shirt. That kind of goes back to, like, some stuff you can and everything. The fact that you go to shows, you see somebody in the band wearing a T-shirt, or you look in the, like, thanks list or the whatever, and you, that it's like this reference that just one thing leads to the next, you know, you just get deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. Yeah, that was a good that was a good way of, of kind of learning about a lot of these bands. Um, that's something I've definitely talked to a lot of people at length about in this. And one of the more memorable thanks lists that I looked at back then was the first Hatebreed album. It was like fucking like every single band and person that was involved with like anything at the time, like hardcore, metal, grind. So I was like, damn, who are all these people? You know. And then you also had the very distribution and vacuum distribution catalogs that we would look at a lot and find a lot of information for bands and stuff. Um, so we're, we're not going to forget that bowling alley story and chronologically we're not, we're not actually quite there yet anyways. Um, what was interesting is around like 96, 97, when we started getting more into like, again, you were getting more into like the grindcore and shit, which I was into and still am into some of those bands, but I was more getting into like just traditional hardcore and like the moshy stuff. Um, so we kind of wanted to start more of like a band that kind of fused those styles and ska was popular at the time. So another, again, I don't think we ever had any band names that would be like acceptable now or like wouldn't be like a, somebody would be offended by this one. That band was called the Scabortions. Um, that band didn't play very many shows either, but that oddly enough, I think that band overlapped with Bob Barker for a minute. Cause I don't think, I don't think Bob Barker had officially broken up yet when we started doing that band. Um, it was, a, it was a, a, a good, a, somebody, we, some people we grew up with, uh, Colin Mori, and uh, Mike Blake on drums at first. Um, and then when we switched to, to a different name, which we'll get to in a second, uh, it was different people. Um, but there was definitely some notorious moments uh, in, in that band, too. It's interesting that all the crazy shit between Bob Barker and the Scabortions happened within a couple months, now that I think about it, because the the we played at uh, Brighton High for another... I don't, I don't know if it was a battle of bands or, or what. I think so. I'm not going to say who the bands were that we trashed because I'm, I'm not friends with the band that we talk shit about, but I'm friends with some of their friends now. And I'm friends with some of the other people that we kind of had beef with that night. But again, going back to the tea house, we were at the tea house the week before that show. And I was always kind of just like one of these like punk ass, like trying to start shit. I don't know who you would compare that to. I'm not going to try to, you know, belittle anybody by comparing that to somebody else, but that we knew that the band that was playing at Brighton the next week was there. And then all of a sudden I was just like, Oh fuck that band. That band sucks. Like naming their name and everything. And one, a couple of people came up to me and they're like, Oh yeah, well we're going to see how that happens next week. You know? So the, so being in 10th grade, you know, it all, it all ends up being like all this shit talk, like for like a whole week, like, Oh, that band's going to get their ass kicked. Josh Lyons is going to get what he deserves tonight. So knowing me, I mean, you remember just as well. Like I went right on that stage that night, and I think either you or Colin or somebody said that I was like Andrew Dice Clay, but like a little bit more offensive or something that night, pretty much. So, 
every in between every song was just complete just insulting everybody i think you were throwing drumsticks at people you were just cursing it was kind of like just go down the line like insult this person this person this person and uh we happened to have another friend who was like a av geek you know at the school and was like back there and was filming like videotaping the thing and he actually made a custom edited video of every insult of you just like yes that kid brendan uh I don't know if you remember him, but he said he had it. I, I wish I could, you know, maybe. Oh my God! Someplace there's a copy of that. But yeah, we ended up being escorted out by the cops, if I remember, because people were concerned with all the threats back and forth that there was going to be an actual like brawl. So the, the police came and escorted us out. Remember? Well, we also had a friend at the time, uh, rest in peace, Tom Burke, who uh, had cancer, and somebody there made some disparaging comment about him having a shaved head or some shit and that uh, sent one of us over the line and then at that point somebody said well if you guys don't leave we're gonna the police are gonna come and i was like well the police have to escort us out now because that shit's nobody from brighton had ever done me any wrong i don't even know i, I was just me being an no, asshole it, it, we did a lot of shit we were assholes i mean there's no question like we, we would prank people like band practice remember you were just like oh <laughs> shit just call somebody and prank call them and just be you know say a bunch of shit and then like just fucking play a bunch of noise into the phone yeah uh we spent hours just tormenting people we did a lot of things that were not exactly yeah good, you're right nobody had done anything wrong across us we just created beefs and just uh oh yeah i mean like massive and then the, i think that another good uh, reference is that playing that bowling alley uh yeah i don't know how you got us on that show but it was a suburban bowling alley and it was like rock and roll, you know, like with families. And it was supposed to be like, I assume, just some innocuous cover band. But we went up there and did our Bob Barker and the Womanizer song. <laughs> cursing. You're... Remember the guy came up? I, I, I don't know if we were swearing right away, though, but go on. Oh, I, I, I don't. Oh, didn't you pull your pants down or something? Well, so what happened was, again, as you and I were talking about the other day when we were kind of getting prepared for this, got to keep in mind the fact that. I wasn't even quite 16 yet. This was 97. It was Valentine's Day, 97. Was it even 97? Yeah, because it was towards okay. the end of Bob Barker, and, and John Olick was there. I knew John Olick in 96, but not in February of 96. We, Him and I talked about that when he, when he was on uh, the small business episode. Um, and the way we got on that show, too, was uh, shout-out to Jamie, Jamie McMahon and, and uh, Sean McCarthy, Sinker, um, a pop-punk band that at the time – I would go back and forth with, sometimes be friends with, and sometimes kind of have rivalries with, whatever you want to call it. Dude, with them, didn't we talk a bunch of shit about Sinker? We did at one point, but this was one of those times where we were cool with them because he got us on the okay. show, I'm pretty sure. So we, I think they played, too, or I don't know if the show ended up happening afterwards, but I'll let you tell the rest of the story from here. But what basically, we were playing on the lane, and again, keep in mind the fact that we're 16. He said like something over over the mic, like, oh, it's Valentine's Day, you guys should drop your pants. So we did. We started playing on our boxers, and then you said uh, over the mic something about like ejaculating or coming or something like that, or or because we're wearing boxers, because we're wearing boxers, maybe there's gonna be less something. You said something about ejaculating, and they cut the sound like they cut. I said that. I'm pretty sure, yeah, because um, oh. you were more clever with like shit like that than I was back then. Um, <laughs> so they cut the sound, but like we were still plugged in, so we were playing. And again, going back to that fucking Brighton High show. 
if I if like somebody did something to cross me or piss me off in that era, I would just become a total asshole and start just. And that kind of happened when I was drinking too, which we might get to later in the episode, maybe not. But um, in my teenage years, I would just start flipping out, and I don't even know what I started saying, but I started yelling and just being a dick. And then I think you kind of remember what else happened uh, after that, basically. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I remember it was, I don't remember very clearly, but I remember it was like it turned real ugly real fast, and the uh, owner of the place, I think, was the manager yeah. or owner? Yeah, it was the owner. He was a dude, like, he had to be in his, like, 50s or something. Yeah. He came up and was like, get the fuck out of here, whatever, the guys, his employees started, like, dragging our shit out, pushing us, you know, ushering us out, out in the parking lot, they're like, all right, get the hell out of here, never come back, that kind of thing, and then Josh, you turned around and said something to the guy or flipped him off or something. And he came and just shoved you from behind. Dude who's like 50 years old, pushes like a 60-year-old kid from behind down onto the parking lot. Like, I mean, full, that's assault. I, now I, I'm just like, damn, so much stuff happened back then that you just, you know, I can hear about these, uh, you know, ways that kids were, just all kinds of stuff that happened to kids back in the day. But this wasn't that long ago. It's like, dude, you can't not assault a child, yeah. essentially. Uh, that could be charges pressed. That could be a lawsuit. I mean, well, as we'll get to, as we'll get to in a little while. Luckily, there's people uh, videotaping everything now. If you think about something oh, yeah, like that, that, yeah, that, if that were to happen now, good. yeah, if that were to happen now, it would have been on Instagram Live and all this other shit. Oh, yeah, but <laughs> the thing is, though, as I mentioned in the interview with Oleg, we didn't go as in depth as you and I are right now. But I did say uh, immediately when I got up off the ground. Again, I've always, I haven't been as quick witted as you with some shit, but I've been like quick on the draw when it comes to shit like this. I stood right up and I was like, you know, you just threw a kid on the ground who's not even 16 yet. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call the cops like you're, like you were referencing just now. I'm gonna call the cops on you. In the back of my mind, I'm not gonna do that. Like I'm not like some hood kid, but I come from an area where it's like we don't fucking use police for anything. You know what I mean? So I've never, I can't think of any time in my life where I've ever, like we'll get to that later, obviously too. But, um, so I, I threatened to call the cops on the dude, and we got home. You, somebody dropped me off, probably weighed like 25 to 30 minutes, maybe an hour later. And I got home, and my mom was just standing there. And the first thing she said when I walked in, she was like, what'd you do? Like, she, like the dude called and, and apologized, but she knew that it was me that, like, oh. like, like got, got, got it to the point where it was. Because I've always kind of had this, like, fiery temper, as you kind of know. And yeah. I just kind of, again, like, now being a, a, a dad and an adult, like, you're right. The, the fact that that dude basically assaulted a minor is insane. You know, but I did say some things, uh, possibly, I don't remember if he had a little dog that I threatened or something like that, but there was definitely something that I said that set him off at that point. So we're talking 1997 now. And again, we didn't really travel. We went to Buffalo starting later that year, but we didn't, which we'll get to that funny story in a minute too. But we didn't really like, we weren't familiar with like a lot of big cities in the other areas. So I'm not sure. If there is like, I know that there was a violent side to hardcore and stuff that, that an element that had existed before, but I don't know if every city had all the weird characters and like sketchy people. Like you and I always reference this party that we want to have where we would invite like literally 500 to a thousand of the sketchiest people you've ever met in your life. Most of them came from Rochester hardcore, 97, 98. You know what I mean? Like I know New York hardcore come to think of it has definitely had some sketchy people, but so the era I'm talking now is like 97 and I'm going to mention a few shows and we'll just kind of go down the line and we'll, you know, so we saw 
Integrity and Catharsis in March of 97. We went to that Syracuse three-day fest that you mentioned in June of 97. We saw 25 to Life in June of 1997. Um, actually, I'm going to stop there because there's a, a legendary show that we saw in July of 97 that I want to kind of talk about after. So like, let's kind of talk about a few of those memories and anything else that kind of, you know, comes up in between for you there, I guess. So what was the first one? Uh, I think it was the Integrity Catharsis Lockjaw. That was in like March. March, a couple days before my 16th birthday, 97, yeah. Okay, yeah, so that was sort of that like era where you're still getting your bearings, you know, like you don't know how this stuff all works, really, you know, like you know that a show is something that happens in a bar or a club, but it also you learn these other venues, so that was at uh, like a church hall, if memory serves, and that was put on by Eric Warner, who was an older dude, who had been in bands, and was kind of like a tough dude, and I remember his security were like all older like legit like bouncers not not like hardcore kids <laughs> your friends that you just like rope into you know get in free if they'll be they'll help with security or something this is like full-on like older dude like i think it might have even been like ex-cops i mean uh off-duty cops or something but it was just funny it was like legit bouncers and then there was this whole you know integrity i've never been a huge fan of integrity but you know they're, they're cool whatever but not my not really my cup of tea but people are diehard fans of them. There are people who are from Buffalo now. I know a lot of them. If you watch, that's crazy about YouTube now. You watch these videos of shows and you see everybody there. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's that dude when he was like 24. Oh, yeah, that's that dude. But a lot of people from Buffalo and some people from, I think, Toronto and stuff. But uh, there were some skinheads there, Nazi skinheads. And that was like, you know, I don't even know if that movie American History X was out yet at that time. It wasn't. No. No, so it's just like, crazy to see these dudes because that's such a crazy subculture i don't know how they could possibly be somebody that walks around with like swastika tattoos and stuff and has any kind of a normal life i mean you would just think you'd be a total pariah everywhere so i just never understood how people do it and then get older and still do it but um anyway these dudes were like out i think hanging out in the parking lot like drinking or doing whatever and then when integrity came on soon as their set started these dudes ran in and just started going fucking nuts i remember there was some dude that had like a skeleton mask on and then you know and then, like you've said before these are like men these are not kids just being stupid these are like you know full-on older guys who are like men <laughs> probably have like rap suits that are real long so i remember we just got the fuck out of there like uh we just took off and we're like we don't want to we don't want to do. I think we might have sat through like the first song by Integrity or something, and then we just screwed. I want to actually. I you always again. I've I've said this once or twice during this episode. You always mentioned to me what a good memory I have. It was me actually that wanted to leave because I was like, "Yo, I, I think we're gonna get jumped." You know what I mean? Like I just kind of had a feeling, and I'm not gonna get into the details of why. Obviously, if you remember, you remember. Um, but I turned to Wade because Wade had driven us that, and I was like, "Yo, we gotta get the fuck out of here." And you were like, "Dude, why are we leaving? Like, we gotta stay. Like, what the fuck? Like, we, what the fuck are we leaving for? You know what I mean?" And I was like, eh, "I think we should probably get the fuck out of here." <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and that, and that, and actually, the, the when we left too was when, if you, I mean, the shit's on YouTube, so you you reference that. You know what I mean? Like, there a fight broke out, and I was like, I think somebody might have even, I don't remember if somebody had a chair in their hand, but I feel like somebody did. But either way, it was like, I don't know how bad this is going to get. And again, I was only a couple days removed from turning 16. So I was like, 
let's get the fuck out of here. You know what I mean? And we bounced. And and and, and again, some fucking loser, uh, uh, punk punk dude from Rochester. I'm not gonna mention his name. If he listened to this episode, go fuck yourself. Um, he referenced us running out of there before, and I I'm like, dude, I've seen you get beat up before. So like, I would rather I would rather leave a room like that that night when I'm fucking 16. You know, with my fucking self intact, like. As an adult, when shit like that would have happened, I probably would have reacted differently. But as a teenager, that was my like you said, that was our first time being around that kind of shit. Like I had never once, I I, I had definitely never been around Nazis before. Like it was it, like I, I, I when we first walked in there that night, like you said, I was just like holy fuck. Like I think like you said, they were mostly in the parking lot, but there was a couple at the show, and I was like Jesus, what are we getting ourselves into? And at one point, the yeah. dude saw my straight edge patch, and he was like, oh, you got some beers in that backpack? And I was like. <laughs> kind of making a mental note of where that dude was going the rest of the night too you know so yeah um, well one thing i learned too with age is that like violence is not a joke and like joe rogan has talked about this and some people like him have talked about it where it's like if you're familiar with violence you know that it's not something that you just uh and people get hurt like really hurt you can die from like one punch to the head you know so i think that people should be ready to defend themselves and should have means for self-defense just in general everybody should have something that they can but this bravado and stuff that you get, especially when you're really young, you know, you don't know anything. Your frontal lobe is not totally even developed at 16 or whatever. And uh, you can get yourself in some serious situations like that are, I don't know, just like fighting, you know, bare knuckle brawling and that kind of stuff is something that's like romantic when you're young, but it's not, it doesn't end well. And uh, that's what you see with all these protests and fights with the, you know, Antifa and uh, the Proud Boys and these groups that are just clashing with each other. But I mean, I mean, there are real repercussions for that, and I don't want to get into the whole topic here. But well, you see all these videos of people brawling. That's not. You should not enter into that lightly because even people who are trained, you know, in mar- martial arts, MMA, boxing, they know that you do not fucking take that lightly because you can get serious brain injuries or, or even die from it. So. Well, funny to reel us back into the timeline and the conversation, there's actually another show that I had kind of mentioned before, but I didn't throw in this list of, of ones to kind of bring up now of our early hardcore years. So you mentioned in violence and, and it not being something to fuck around with. One thing that's funny to mention um, is that I had also gone to Catholic schools up until ninth grade, and then I purposely got myself uh, kicked out, uh, whatever you want to call it, from uh, Aquinas to the point where I couldn't go back the next year and I definitely couldn't go to McQuaid the next year because uh, one of the Bob Barker shows that we sh- we didn't reference, uh, I got banned from McQuaid. We're not going to say what I said, but uh, I got banned from McQuaid after that, so they weren't going to let me go there. So I ended up going to East High, which at the time was kind of a rough school. I don't I mean, maybe it is now, too. I mean, not with I the... Ver- ver- I think it's still pretty rough. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. But there weren't a lot of kids like me there at the time. There was uh, Travis Rankin, who ended up singing for Discern and played in a bunch of other Rochester bands. A lot of people... He, actually, I'll probably get him on here eventually because he's a really good dude. Um, he went there at the time, and a few of my other buddies who I ended up uh, becoming good friends with over the years went there. But a lot of times during lunch, being kind of like an, like an outcast like we were, I would, I would just kind of hang by myself and it was like uh april 20th or 21st i i, I don't remember the exact day but i could i could definitely pinpoint it if i look if i look at the flyer for the show i'm about to reference i was just kind of walking around outside because i didn't really feel like being in school at the time um 
and as I'm walking around, all of a sudden, like, six dudes start surrounding me, and I'm like, what the fuck, you know? And you kind of know what's going to happen, because I had never been jumped before, and, and again, I, I wasn't really jumped that day either, but I kind of was, but you still kind of know what's going to happen, and I'm like, yo, what do you want, you know? And they're like, give us all your shit, and I'm like, I, I don't have anything, and they're like, yo, give us all your shit, and I literally had, like, two dollars in my pocket, so I just, like, threw it at him, and as I'm walking away, one of the kids kind of, like, sucker punched me, he had, like, a ring on his finger, and he got me in the fucking eyebrow, and it just started, like, gushing blood. So, like, when something like that happens, and you're already outside, I'm not really thinking about going back in school with blood all over myself, you know what I mean? So, I took my fucking, and I remember this, too, I took my Bouncing Souls t-shirt off, and put it on my fucking eyebrow, and just, like, covered my face, and walked all the way home. Which, from East High, is probably, like, two miles. Like, gushing blood, you know? And I and my mom is, like, standing there, like, what the fuck happened? I had to tell her what happened. And, um... I remember WWF must have been there a couple days before because the lady who stitched me up at the hospital told me that she had just stitched Bret Hart up like like the night or two nights before. So that that was like a Monday, maybe a Tuesday. And that Saturday, and I never really thought about this until recently, um, Slugfest, Hatebreed, Brothers Keeper, and like two other bands, one band featuring dudes who now are in Fall Out Boy, I'm pretty sure, um, were playing at the Showplace Theater in Buffalo. And you, you myself... And our buddy, who we at the time called JC, whose real name is Giancarlo, um, we had already planned to go to Buffalo that weekend. So I fucking, um, I don't even remember if the stitches dissolved or if I still had a, like, what, like, I've seen pictures of the show recently. You can't really tell if I have a black eye or anything, but, like, I went to that, we went to Buffalo for our first, like, out-of-town hardcore show, like, four days after I got jumped and, and stopped going to high school. You know what I mean? Like, that's fucking nuts. Yeah. And we took the we took the Peter Pan or whatever the bus to, to Buffalo. Remember we took a we took a is it tra- trailways or we took a Greyhound bus and I'm pretty sure that was the same the same Greyhound bus where when we got to Buffalo some weird dude was like up front complaining about something and then all of a sudden security gets on the bus and they're like um this man's Walkman or Discman was stolen so we're trying to find out who stole oh. it and some dude next to me or you was like yo man. I could have a fucking thousand motherfucking pounds of weed on me right now, and you're fucking complaining about a disc man? And I'm like, yo, uh, I think yeah, this that, dude next to us I might, totally you know? That 100%. I thought that happened in Canada, but you're right, that was in Buffalo. I don't know if it was that time, but yeah, it was, uh, and I told, I remember that clear as day, and the guy was freaking out. It's like, dude, if you have a thousand pounds of weed, you probably should start with the man. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and then we took the bus, like the city bus, to the venue in Buffalo. You know, we never, I, I had been to Buffalo just for like a couple Sabres games when I was a kid. I had never been there. We took like this local bus up to, uh, you know, north, up to the city. And now I know Buffalo a lot better after, after I lived there and going to college there and stuff. But we actually were on the bus. Remember, he was a, who was that kid? He played like. Uh, Mike Trance. Did he play like cornerback for Buffalo State or something? I think like, so. Maybe yeah. it was like a, maybe it was like a, like a, I don't know, like a tight end. Yeah, he played something. Hex and I were talking about the last episode too, but <laughs> yeah. He was talking shit about on the bus. He's like, "Oh, you guys from out of town? Oh, what's up?" He was he was a dude from Troy, but he played actually. He was a Bengal, Buffalo State Bengal on the football team, which is you know, but whatever. But uh, did he have some like big religious tattoo on his back or something? I just remember. I don't that. know. He was huge though. Like I I, I remember being on. What's funny is we when we were on the bus, like, I couldn't really tell he was this jacked-up dude. 
Like he had the X's on his hand, so we knew he was a straight edge hardcore kid. He had, yeah, I think he had on an eight. I think he had on an H two O coat too. Um, yeah, like a coat, like a uh, windbreaker. Windbreaker. Yeah. So we knew he was into hardcore, so he kind of told us where to go and what to do and shit. So he was like, he called home of the hits, home of the shits. Yeah, he called it home of the shits. But we went there. We got a bunch of seven inches. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, it was the store. I mean, yeah, it wasn't home of the shits. Yeah, home of the hits. Yeah, that's one thing about Buffalo is they've always had good record stores as long as we've been into this kind of stuff, man. Hell yeah. You know? Yeah, Buffalo's awesome, yeah. Um, I fucking love Buffalo, and, and now I, I love Rochester with all the nostalgia and the years in between. Yep. I miss it. I miss both those places. So, um, this, we caught, we like you said, we caught that city bus to Home of the Shits. We went there. I think we got a pizza somewhere along the way. Um... And then we went to, to, to the Showplace Theater, and, and I won't go too far into my side of the story because I, I talked to Hex about it on, on his episode a little bit. But one thing that I don't know if I mentioned on that episode that I'm sure you'll remember when I, when I bring it up is <laughs> the first two people that were there aside from us ended up being uh, Jonah Bayer, Bayer actually. I know, I know his last name is pronounced Bayer now because he's related to Vanessa Bayer, who I, which I didn't realize until recently. Um, yeah. So Jonah Bayer and Ed Mishik from Cleveland were standing outside, both wearing uh, the same digression. Disciple. Disciple or digression, one of those bands. Either Disciple or digression. Oh, yeah, they were both wearing matching T-shirts, which yeah. is a fucking hilarious yeah. thing to do. I mean, obviously two friends going to show that. that's a, I don't think we ever, well, ever did that. They, they tried to act like they didn't know they did it, but I'm like, yo, you guys drove from Cleveland to Buffalo. Like, didn't you realize along the way somewhere that you're wearing the same shirt? You know, so we shot the shit with those guys for a while. You ended up becoming pen pals with Jonah for a while. I mean, I'll let you kind of tell, you know, your memories. Oh, that's funny, dude. I remember all the details, except for I don't remember being pen pals with him um, until you say that now, and it kind of rings a bell. But yeah, they were just two other awkward kids hanging out outside the show, handing out flyers or something. We don't know exactly what was going with them. And he's a cool, you know, I remember, I don't remember the other guy so much, but Jonah was a, you know, funny guy or whatever. And he wrote some articles for Vice later, which I found years later, just by chance, about being friends with the guys from One Life Crew. <laughs> being like this just like liberal kid who didn't even know anything about politics. And these guys are like fucking Republican, like windbags, who are older and kind of kind of poignant, you know, because it brings you back to like being at the age just being so naive and whatever. But uh, it's hilarious that his sister, two people who don't know these guys, the one, the I think she actually stopped being on there a couple of years ago. We, my, my, uh, Sarah, my girlfriend, and I, we watched like a lot of it well, when we, we first started living together in like, 2010, and we watched it because she loves it. But I, you know, I, I hate Trump as much as I hate to use the word hate. I get I hate to use the word hate. I, you know, I, 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 I strongly dislike Trump as much as most people do. However, the, the 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 Alec Baldwin shit for me it kind of got old after a while so that's why I kind of was like all right enough oh, of this you know yeah well, I could see that yeah but, but yeah, anyway she was yeah. a, she was an SNL cast member for a long time and she's the one with the red hair with the kind of like high pitched voice whatever yeah and when Josh told me when he told me that like you know a few months ago or whatever I was like holy shit that kid's the brother of the that girl because she's very distinctive and like you know I've seen her in lots of stuff on SNL but anyway. Yeah, so that show, I don't remember too much about the show. But was JC with us? Yeah, the whole time. Oh, see, I don't remember that either. That's how memory is really scary because you can remember from, like, crystal clear details about certain aspects, but then you totally forget that, like, this was with you or that, uh, yeah, this was a friend who was not into hardcore really on his own, but he was just into, like, excitement and action. 
used to climb up uh, anything you could find climbable he would climb like you know utility pole 30 feet up in front of the house to hang there by one arm or i remember going to the movie theater and he just scaled up the downspout for the sound movie theater and just up on the top of the fucking place he was a lunatic he's a doctor now you know yeah uh, md so we got a lot of mds from our past here nicole straight shout out she john carlash uh ronda john carlo rondash shout out anyway so yeah, that that was a uh, real formative experience because it was that first time out of town. The adventure is super intense. Then you don't know the place at all. You don't even know the city. And then uh, the show, as you you talk to uh, Jay from Slugfest and and to uh, Scott was Scott Vogel Slugfest. Yeah, he sang for him. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, so you talk to a couple of those guys, and that was just an awesome. I mean, that was a cool venue. It was sort of like this like falling apart old theater. In this industrial weird section of Buffalo, you just go in and you're like, what the hell is this place? And it's just a big ass, you know, hardcore going on. So that was that was cool. I actually ended up now that I think about it, that was my third time seeing bands out of town. Um, at the end of eighth grade, I had seen Bush and Wax in Buffalo, <laughs> which Wax was actually an introduction to kind of punk stuff for me too, because those dudes kind of. Were in the, they were band called like 22 Jacks, and they, those dudes were kind of like on the, they were hip to the punk thing. But anyways, yeah. I had actually been to Showplace one time before that. I've referenced this this show a few times on this podcast, so I won't go into detail. But yeah, I had been to Showplace New Year's Eve a few months before that. Despair had played there. Um, but it's just cool because at that, at that Slugfest show, like you're saying, it was our first real exposure to like all this crazy shit. Like we're out of town, the Syracuse Sluggers were there. Fucking Hatebreed played like five songs or however many songs they had at the time. Um, and what was interesting is is like Rochester. A lot of people from our are you know it was a different it was a different age group which again we've talked about. Those dudes were probably like seven or eight years older than us, at least like five or six. And they and everybody rolled out that night. Like there was probably like I would say like at least twenty to forty people from Rochester at that show that night. You know, um, and then around that time is when like overdale started really popping off and there was a lot of different shows that happened at overdale some of them we can talk about some of them we probably can't um (laughs) but that was like when we really kind of started networking locally was when uh uh, jim callahan who i obviously interviewed on a previous episode uh two really um episodes um he was kind of like him and rob filardo i would say are probably like two of my biggest influences in like rochester music uh growing up you know yeah, and Jim was always like this guy who was this adult, like we've talked about, you know, someone who seemed like a real adult, and he still kind of does, you know, he's like a, uh, he's legit, he's got legit skills, like, in life, you know, he's a sound engineer, or whatever the title of his job is, but he does all these, like, big events, you know, professional events and stuff, but he knows his shit, and he's also super opinionated, but he's also, like, a Unitarian, I think, and a Cub Scout, I mean, a Boy Scout leader, <laughs> but he's into all this crazy shit, which I totally respect, you know, the mix of stuff that he does, and, uh, He's always been, he's also from a family who's like an outlaw biker, dad was like an outlaw biker club, which is hilarious, and just, just interesting. Uh, so yeah, Jim is an awesome dude, and also Rob, yeah, I totally agree, like somebody that just always supported this shit that he had no, he just never any like found enthusiasm for local bands, and the fact that you can do that for so many years and decades is just amazing, you know? Yeah, it's really cool. So, yeah, so kind of at the same time all this shit's happening locally with overdale i mean there wasn't a ton of shows that summer but like if you think about it 
um, at the Overdale House uh, in one year. And Kendall played there. Asshole Parade, which we'll get to a different show that they played soon. Um, Asshole Parade played there. Catharsis played there. These are all different shows, too. Ayer played there. Um, that would have been that would have been on the catharsis show because I think they were on oh, tour together okay, at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so that was all like '97. And oh, for people who aren't familiar, for people that don't know, this is literally just a house. Yeah, like a rental house with like a shitty little basement. I mean, like really, yeah, cramped basement. You know, there was a lot of different stuff going on at that house, and then we also had we kind of went to Buffalo a couple times that summer. We went to Syracuse for the for the three day hardcore fest, which. I remember Iyer played here that Friday, so I went to that, and you. I think you went for all three days of the Syracuse Fest, right? Didn't you go with, like, Kelly Missile's brother or some shit, and you stayed with them for a day or two? Um, yeah, it's people I haven't thought about in, like, you know, however many years. Uh, yeah, I think, I think I went and stayed with somebody's brother in Syracuse or somewhere around there and went to the show. Yeah, I just remember, I don't know if I was with anybody that I actually was friends with or if they Sunday because like I said I, I I I went to the Irish show here on Friday and then I was a total like I don't know what you would call it but it was like my first job at Don and Bob's and I and I, I guess I assumed you couldn't take off that many days like you had to work certain days you could only take off so many so I didn't have to take off the whole weekend to go to that fest so I only took off the Sunday because I knew uh, Despair and Hatebreed were playing that Sunday and I really wanted to see um i had seen them both before but like th- those are bands that i really liked and, and and like you're saying the energy live and and what's interesting about despair that night too i don't think we knew who andy williams was at the time but we had seen him around and uh i think we referred to him as the who farted guy for a few weeks after that because he was wearing like either a who farted hat or a who farted t-shirt no, and just a trucker hat said who farted yeah and he was just like moshing around we're like yo that guy seems kind of like a pretty funny guy and then we would just kind of see him around the rest of that summer um and he was probably at the show in buffalo a couple weeks later that i think anybody listening to this now would be if they if they didn't get the chance to go to that then they would be kicking themselves to not have gone to it and anybody who listens to it listens to this kind of music would be envious of the fact that in buffalo we saw spaz fucking asshole parade <laughs> suppression um and i want and then obviously shotokan open which you know we won't go into super crazy detail about that but that was one of their more notorious shows for sure um but seeing spaz was just fucking legendary again you're more into that kind of like fast i don't know if you're into those guys as much now but like i was always like not super into that kind of music but like seeing bands like that live was just so cool you know yeah i mean my my taste has always run more towards like the fast just just fast hardcore fast and i now i mean i like lots of stuff but uh definitely the crustier end of things for lack of a better word but uh at that point i was really into spaz they they you know i still it still sounds pretty good but i'm not i don't listen to it on the regular or anything now but um 
I was really into them at the time. I think I had a Spaz t-shirt. <laughs> I was like, I had a bunch of their records. I was real hyped on them. So I remember finding out they were going to play in Buffalo and finding out Eric Elman, who you should, you should if you can do an episode with him, you definitely should because he's, he's a source of tons of stories and information. But he was booking the show, so I sent him the Scamorsham demo and a letter like, hey, man, do you think we could get put on this as an opener? He never got back to me. But to this day, he'll tease me about this abortion, uh, you know, whenever he gets a chance. But then we went up there, and that was, like, the first time. So I had been, like, pretty deep since, like, 96, spring of 96. From there on, I had been into the underground country stuff more and more. Um, and I remember being super excited just, like, a year after that. So that was the first time I had seen bands. I remember listening to the band Capitals Casualties in, like, 7-inch and just being like, what do those dudes look like? Like, do they have, like, fucking, like, mohawks or, like, long hair or, like, shit? Do they just have, like, buzz cuts like us? Like, I had no idea, you know? So, like, seeing those bands actually play live was kind of an eye-opener. And, uh, yeah, that was a crazy show. So, yeah, we started going to Buffalo that summer. Was that the summer we saw Drop Dead and, and Monster X in Albany? Or was that a- You went, you went, I didn't go with you to that. That was the following summer. That was Monster X's last show, too. Um, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, you didn't go. It was right. you and your brother. I don't know if Pat Dent with, went with you or not. And, and yeah, then, uh, Pat Dent, Dirty Dan, yeah. from, uh, a bunch of bands, but from Connoisseur most recently. <laughs> and, uh, my brother, and that, I remember Dirty Dan talking about how he believed in aliens, and we were like, oh. And then we slept in a tent with Pat Dent, my brother and Pat, and I slept in a tent, and Dirty Dan slept on my mom's station wagon. And I remember that's when we converted Pat to vegetarianism. That, that, like that night, we just like went back and forth, like drilling him with facts and like whatever. And finally, he, he was like, "Okay, I'm gonna be a vegetarian." Two things that are interesting about that: one, uh, and this is dating back to 2011. Uh, Sarah, whenever I reference Pat Dent, he's definitely not a vegetarian now because I always reference him as the guy who who pulled out a can of sardines um, at okay. a at a show, um, and then. Um, Oh my god! What was the other thing I was gonna say? Um, oh, the vegetarianism thing. That's a that's a really good point. Ninety seven. So especially having gone to that Syracuse three day fest and just all the different things that were going on, I don't know. Like I know you're not a vegetarian anymore either, but like we can say that like a lot of the things that we learned, like especially me, a lot of the things that I adapted to my everyday life now were from that. From definitely from hardcore. But also, like, we learned around that era, like, 97. There was always animal rights pamphlets everywhere. There was, yeah. like, fucking... Somehow you ended up into this fucking socialism shit, which <laughs> which, which Pat Murphy referred to as, like, a, a Republican or whatever at one point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, there was the all the shit going on with Mumia Abu Jamal, which is still going on, but you don't really hear about it as much. But we even went to a rally for that, you know? Yeah. There was all these different... And I know we were teenagers, so you could say we were, like, naive and, and, you know, but, like, even now, like, as we'll get into, like, a lot of this shit still hits home for me. So it's crazy to think that, like, from punk and hardcore, we learned a lot of different things and it kind of still resonates with us, you know? Right. Yeah, totally. Um, but, yeah, so 97, then another Buffalo show that I talked to Hex about recently that was fun and some of these bands you might not be as into, but 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 I know we have fun memories from the show and the people. Uh, Fall Silent, Dillinger Escape Plan, Unra, 
and Sirhan played at Discovery Records. And if I remember correctly, Steve Titus told me afterwards that he had 27 paying people at that show. But but to this day, that's still one of my fondest memories of going to a hardcore show. Like just all the different fun yeah, so shit. For people that don't remember um, Discovery or don't know, Discovery Records was in Tonawanda, which is outside of Buffalo, but it's like a blue collar kind of, you know, small city. And they had this crazy, Eric Elman used to refer to it as the blast beat capital of, the, of America or something. They had this crazy concentration of, you know, like grind and noise core and just fucking crazy bands consisting of, you know, a small group of people basically, but pretty much like the Elman brothers were a big part of it. And then Malachi, uh, Derek, Cousin, how do you say his last name? Derek? Kowalowski, I'm pretty sure. Kowalowski, yeah, he was a big, uh, big influence but anyway it's just this kind of weird place but discovery records was this record store that was just loaded with punk hardcore metal you know weird avant-garde whatever shit and uh it was in an unlikely place basically like this little main street of this blue collar little town and upstairs above the place it had a uh, little venue where they had shows and the owner was a underwater uh underwater welder you know those guys who dive and weld underwater <laughs> i don't know why i remember that but i know jeffers and some other people on here have referenced practicing under yeah. discovery and we had bands that practiced there too it was a practice space with, you know a bunch of different little jam rooms in the basement but anyway it was a cool spot and that show i remember that totally distinctly because i heard hex's episode and he was talking about how dillinger skate planet was their first out-of-town show ever isn't that insane? Either out of either out of town. Sorry, sorry about that. Either out of town or out of state. But yeah, it was definitely. Yeah, maybe I don't know what the distinction was, but it was. They went off, and that band even then was super technical and super mathy and tight. Not my favorite style necessarily, but just like impressive to watch, especially this right in front of them. They're just like fucking. It's the sound is just washing over you. They're one guitar player. I don't know if. Uh, I might I might have his name wrong. I want to say his name might have been Dimitri, but he was, like, he would just go crazy with that guitar because we saw him play a few months later and it was the same thing. But but back to that show, like, not just them, but there was, that was a fun show. Oh, yeah. Fall Silent uh, were really good. I mean, they're not my favorite band, but they're cool. They're, they still, you know, stand the test of time, I think. Uh, and funny enough to mention, my kids, I played this uh, on Spotify. There's some <laughs> compilation of, um, Sesame Street or kids songs that are by like punk bands and Fall Silent does a version of the Sesame Street theme so they start out singing clean and playing yeah. it like straight and then screaming and going fast and my kids fucking died when I played that for them like my son was almost crying laughing I don't know I don't know if I've ever sent you the video but I sent it to Levi their singer they I when when we first started having the quarantine I, I played that for my son a couple times and he would he would like <laughs> He would like bop around the room and stuff and dance and stuff. It was a pretty funny uh, video. I, I I might maybe I'll post that with this interview or something because it's it'll it'll kind of attach to the story or whatever. But yeah, it's interesting that they were like a small band, but now that that if you if you look on YouTube, somebody posted that years ago and that's got like several views. Like probably I want to say in the millions now because it's a Sesame Street so, or yeah Sesame oh, Street yeah yeah. yeah so but yeah they were really they were good they were tight um, and then Unra. I got a tape of theirs, and I still think that stands the test of time. Uh, you know, it's kind of more, you know, they do some kind of grind elements, but also like metallic hardcore. Um, yeah, yeah, that was an awesome show. And again, seeing something like that with that intimate space with that few people, 
feel like it's really special because everybody like put in a really killer performance and you kind of just know there's tons of potential there future things that are going to happen you're like one of the first you know you're just seeing it in this with, with like less than 50 people it's pretty awesome it's pretty awesome and I, I I think we'd be remiss not to mention a little bit more about Sirhan too because most people listening who are familiar with them will realize this but Andy Williams and Rat Boy from Every Time I Die, well, Rat Boy, you know, hasn't played in Every Time I Die for some years, but they were in that band, and that, and they were just like a crazy, like, grindcore band with two vocalists, um, and we became, you know, pretty decent friends with Derek. I haven't talked to him in years. Last time I saw him was when I booked Mastodon in uh, 2003, so that shows you that was probably like 15, yeah, it was like 15 or 20 years ago, but they... We went and saw those guys a few times. We liked their demo. I don't know if I would listen to them now, you know, but and then I interviewed uh uh Derek and Eric Eric Bouth. Is that Bouth? How do you say his last name? Bouth, I think with a T H. Yeah. Um remember I interviewed them at uh at uh Mercury Theater and it was like this long fucking interview where I asked them like about like influences or bands and they went on for like ten minutes about bands that they liked and bands that they thought they were influenced by and I'm oh, like, yeah, I'm just like, that. I'm just like, my God, what if Andy was here too? How much longer this fucking interview would have been, you know? I don't, I think most hardcore kids, but definitely like in our era and, and, and like, like, like you're saying, like Eric Elman is a good example. Uh, Andy Williams, you, me, like we're all people that have like these really warped, fucked up senses of humor. You know what I mean? Like, and so yeah. like the kind of shit, like my girlfriend and I have pretty crazy senses of humor too, but like some of the shit that I'll say, like. It's just over the top still, and I'm like, you know, like, yeah, it's just crazy. Oh, yeah. I've got a very dark sense of humor, and it's funny. My, my team that I work with at my job uh, are all kind of like that, too, which I feel like it's almost like the law of attraction. It's like somehow you end up with those people who are, because there's a lot of normies out there who would not think the shit that we think is funny is funny, you know what I mean? So you and I kind of did, like, two more bands that kind of coincide with this era I'm not sure if we missed any of the shows that I first mentioned from that summer, but we'll go back if we need to. Um, so we did, we had done the Skabortions, but, and Colin makes fun of me for this now. Like, he'll be like, oh, you motherfuckers, you kicked me out of the band that I started, which I'm like, I had kind of forgotten about that, but we did because for me at the time, like you were talking about like the open E, like the chugga chugga, I, I never really have known how to play instruments that well, but I knew you had to palm mute and play the E chord kind of hard. And for whatever reason, yeah. I don't know why, but like you were saying how like you were kind of like musically autistic and you could only play a certain way. Like Colin is like this hippie kid, but he more wanted to play like surf and like 60s rock. And we're trying to play yeah. like grindcore, but with like mosh parts. And he just couldn't really do it. So finally, we had been playing around town with the, with the professionals quite a bit. So we knew Pete Kniff and I knew he was like straight edge and into the same kind of shit we were. <laughs> So we asked him to kind of replace Colin and play guitar, but instead of doing like making it look like we were just, you know, kicking Colin out, which if you think about it, it's not just that Colin exited the band. Like we got rid of Mike Blake pretty quickly afterwards too. And well, we basically had two hippies. We were two yeah. like, hardcore kids or punk, whatever. But we had two hippies in the band who were not interested in that music at all. I remember uh, Mike was into Fish really big, the drummer. <laughs> he went on. He went on. T- he went on tour with them quite a bit, I'm pretty sure, too. He went on tour with oh, Fish yeah, a bunch, yeah. 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 I mean, that was big at the time with yeah. Fish, but he, I remember making him a tape of Man is a Bastard, because I was like, this, what's the most hippie sounding thing? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, 
is cool, man. Yeah. He's a great dude. He's like a libertarian now. He's like really into astronomy. I don't know. He's, he's on the, all kinds of weird trips these days. But uh, yeah, I think it was one of those just things, you classic, you know, you, you break up the band, you reform it like a week later. I think people have referenced that in some of the other episodes you've done. Yeah. So you just conveniently like get your your friend who's not working out out of the band and then form it again. But we changed the name and we got yeah we got well, we got Brian Kozlowski. We also got Brian Kozlowski on the drums. Yeah, he was a good drummer. Yeah, and he had played in makeshift uh, with uh, Lyle Sprague. Shout out to Lyle, and actually shout out to Eric. But they were doing that band at the same time, and we asked Brian to play drums because that's the thing. I don't know if you remember or not, but Brian Kozlowski is a really good drummer. Like he would play in like years later, like all sorts of different, like not like well known, but just like all sorts of random like bands and shit. And I was always like, yo, that's a fucking drummer right there. And both those dudes, Pete, the guitar player, and Brian were super tight musicians who had, like, actual chops, you know? Yeah. Like, Pete could, yeah. And and I guess we're kind of referring to him by the wrong name, but I won't say it now since I've outed him by his real name, but he's a really good artist, too, uh, Brian is. Oh, yeah. um, and actually, Lyle's a, Lyle's a, a, a hell of a drummer, too, um, you know? Um, but anyways, so we started running through the blood, and, you know... First of all, that's that's named off of a you you came up with the name. I'm pretty sure it's a Fear of God song. Fear um, of God, yeah, the Swiss grind band, yeah. Yeah, that that I, I actually that's one of the few bands which you'll be surprised. When I was doing like Enterprise Hardcore and shit, like like 2001, 2003, booking like all the shows and shit, I would still put that Seven and John sometimes. Like that, that I like I like that band. I, I haven't listened to it in years, but that was like I don't listen to as many of those like fast, crazy, like brutal bands like that. But that. For whatever reason, I like that that seven inch or whatever. You know? Yeah, it's pretty extreme. Yeah. Uh, I remember again Eric Elman, not to name check him too much, but he would always have weird facts about bands and stuff, and he said that the you know the first stuff from like eighty seven, eighty eight, like it's really early and super primitive and raw and fast and brutal, but the uh, the dude was just like puking into the mic, just like, and he's Eric was like. Oh yeah, that guy. Uh, he looks like a total nerd. He has like glasses, and, like a sweater, like a cardigan. <laughs> These videos from like '88. I don't know if it was true or not. He'd say a lot of shit, but uh, yeah, I like to think of the image of that guy as yeah, just being like a nerd with like a you know clean cut haircut and glasses and a cardigan. So running through the blood, basically, we played a few Scabortion songs. Probably, I really don't remember that well. I know that Pete wrote a really good mosh part that we would like mimic for years to come afterwards. And we would do the Andy Williams two-step even with it sometimes. Um, but if I remember correctly, running through the blood only ever played one show, but it was a pretty noteworthy show for Rochester because it was the first ever all ages show at the bug jar. It was the oh, Luna. Wow. It was the Luna chicks. That. I remember it was in the summer and yeah. the summer Olympics, right? So you were wearing the team, the dream team three or whatever the, it wasn't, the funny thing is, is it was the year after the Olympics because I bought that jersey set at Marshalls, so I probably would have gotten it for like less at Marshalls. It was a Carl Malone Team USA jersey set. Yeah, so it was the Luna Chicks, Luna Chicks, Danny Down on the Syndromes, and us. I don't even know if a sinker might have played too. Actually, we didn't even That's say. That's a hilarious lineup. I yeah, mean, just everything about that is, is hilarious. So at that point, we had finally like put together our first band that actually sounded somewhat like a band, like not just like kids dicking around in the basement like it actually sounded sort of you know and you were wearing like, <laughs> uh, the thing that man. the thing that sucked I think you had the headband 
headband too, didn't it? It wasn't a Team USA headband. It was probably just like a Nike headband, but I definitely did have a headband on, yeah. Okay. I even wore that. If you look, there's like a there's like a Warp Tour. I think it's Warp Tour 97. And like Licky, or, or you probably don't even know this kid, Licky, but he played in Sandfest. Like one of those dudes, they would tell me years later, like, dude, you always did that. And it would be so annoying. There's like a, a video from like Warp Tour 97 where Snapcase is getting ready to play. And they're not even playing. They're not even playing any music. But you just see me wearing the jersey and the shorts, fucking running full speed, back and forth, and then just jumping on top of the crowd and just like to open up the whole area like an asshole, you know? Like most people would just like put their arms together and like push through, but I'm like fucking like a track meet, just like running full speed and jumping on people's heads. Um, so yeah, I would wear a lot of jerseys and shorts back then, and if I could now, I still would. But my one little uh, side note from that Bug Jar show that still kind of bothers me to this day, and it's not their fault. They wanted to get in for free, and they didn't want to have to pay the surcharge. But to this day, that's the last time I really sang for a band. It's the last show I played singing for a band. And mentioned in Lyle and Pat Murphy before, they were like, yo, come on, let us get in with you guys and just say we're in the band. And I'm like, but you're not really in the band. You're just going to chill up front, right? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, come to find out while we're playing, Pat murphy grabs a mic and starts screaming into it lyle did it a couple times i'm like yo come on i want to fucking have my shine or whatever you know and i didn't realize at the time that i would never sing for a band again or whatever you know but it's kind of like that was there's even a video of me wearing the pete kniff had the, well he, he who knows if pete still has these videos or not but he had a video of me wearing the outfit and, and jumping really high in the air and it was it was fucking classic entertaining shit man um oh, yeah. But yeah, so 97, 98, we're getting more into like out there shit, shit that like Pat Dent to this day is probably still a fan of, but you and I, I, maybe you listen to it now, but I definitely don't. I have respect for it still, but we started getting more into like harsh noise and like Sean Lambert tape comps and all sorts of shit. And I started a solo project called J-Dog and then... (laughs) you me and the revolving dora people started another one and both of these mind you were harsh noise but not in a good way like we were just basically like making as much terrible noise as we could so this other project this other project was called gastrointestinal atrocity again i don't think you and i you and i could never be in a band called like the the nice guys or, or you know nick and the nice guys or whatever we always had to be in the fucking you know gastrointestinal atrocity um yeah but it's yeah. weird because people actually, I don't know if it was a spectacle or what, but you remember we got asked to play a few shows, dude. Like, Yeah, yeah, we played a handful of shows. We played with that band Orchid. Remember that? Orchid and Jerome's Dream, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, smashed I smashed yeah. an organ at we that show. Room, yeah, we were like, uh, <laughs> it was really, really dumb noise. It wasn't good. Yeah, I, I actually, believe it or not, I still do listen to a little bit of noise here and there, but more like the... I actually have come around a little bit from their song, believe it or not. Uh, White House, uh, Consumer Electronics, like some of the, there is some stuff that I like, but I have to be in a very specific mood, obviously. You know what's really weird, and not, what's that? What's that? Not to get too off topic, but what's really weird is some current hardcore, which you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't really like these bands, but some current, like, hardcore that I listen to, like, there's a band called Division of Mind from Richmond, and they, they have, like, they're, like, a heavy, hardcore, like, I don't want to say tough guy, but kind of like that kind of style. But they have, like, harsh noise and shit mixed in, like, to different parts. Huh. Like, in between for, like, um, what do you call it? Like, uh, 
interludes or whatever intros. Inter- yeah, 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 and even Harm's Way, Harm's Way from uh, Chicago, they do more like industrial type stuff. But it's weird to see like, like well, tough guy like Mashi. Industrial noise have sort of a symbiotic. Yeah, that that kind of has a relationship going back. But again, not to get too uh, into the weeds with like you know bands that we're not gonna really talk about too much. But it's just interesting now to see like. In, in the more the modern era that like like traditional hardcore people respect the noise and stuff too you know but yeah, yeah. that is that is funny so we did gastrointestinal atrocity we played <laughs> i would say we probably played as many gastrointestinal atrocity shows as we did bob barker shows if not if not probably, damn, yeah, damn yeah, near yeah. it i remember playing you know a handful and uh it was really stupid it was uh, i think uh sorry i think we were kind of influenced by like the band soiled out of Buffalo that was doing that, and then Sean Lambert's project. It's like the dumbest thing you can think of. Like, uh, uh, Derek had a band, Terry and an Asshole, that was all vacuum cleaner noise. I mean, stuff is just so dumb. You can't can't get any dumber than that. And I think that was sort of a bar that we were going for. <laughs> yeah, but again, like, people asked us to play shows. I mean, this, one of the shows, it was in my basement, but we played with, uh, well, no, there's two different ones that were in my basement that we played. That were, that one is really noteworthy, and the other one's just kind of funny. We played with Abstain, which that band was okay, but it's more just funny because that that douchebag. Maybe he's a nice guy, but that one the couple times I had dealings with him were not that great. Jay, the drummer singer, he had that fucking Madonna microphone or whatever oh, yeah. that he wanted to he wanted to <laughs> use, and for some reason we couldn't figure out how to hook it up to the PA, and he was like throwing a hissy fit, and I'm like, dude. This is a basement show with like 15 people. Just fucking play your drums and scream. Everyone's yeah, going to hear you just the same, you know? Um, but then in my basement, uh, like six months later, we, I think Spindle might have booked this. I don't know who booked it, but we played, shout out to Spindle too. Um, we played with fucking Against Me from uh, Florida. <laughs> That's fucking crazy. You know? And just, just for the people, the. 99.9% of people who were never in that basement, basement on Wilcox Street. It was like not only a basement that had a super low ceiling, and it was like smaller than your average basement. <laughs> it was really small. <laughs> yeah, and we had like three or four cats too. That That's something that I've definitely heard people reference over the years when talking about the shows. Like, you know, I was like 18. No, I was probably 17 or 18 actually. So I wasn't really – I guess I was – had most of my wits with me but i just didn't i was used to the smell of cat litter boxes so i don't even know if we took i don't even know if we took the cat litter boxes out for the first show i think they might have been i think they might have been in there for the abstain show but i mean we took them out for the against me show and all the other shows but i just remember when this band flesh eating creeps played my basement a few months later um they were like oh yeah the guys from abstain kind of hipped us to the fact that it might smell like cats here or something you know <laughs> and what also people don't might not realize is my grandma um had had a stroke a few years before and we were living with her my sister and i she was probably 86 or 87 years old and here i am having fucking all these bands <laughs> play in her basement my sister would take her out to like chi chi's like a restaurant or friendlies for a few hours and they would be like she would be walking down the driveway with her walker while like abstain or against me is like unloading from my basement. You know, it's, it's, you know, I can't, your grandma did not speak English, right? She did, but you couldn't really understand it at all. Like I had to, I had to translate for whenever we'd go anywhere and she would use like, like if you were going to say like, and like she would say E, like she would use all the conjunction, the Spanish ones. Spanish. I mean, like I, I, she was really old. She was definitely like one of these people that like, 
now we think of as most most Roosevelt. She was old, infirm, you know, out of it. Like you know, seemed happy most of the time, but like yeah, definitely out of it. Like, yeah, definitely not not able to do what most people. Do. Getting back to that era, so yeah, we did the gastrointestinal atrocity thing. I don't know if that ever just fizzled out or we just got sick of doing it. Um, but then around the time when you started getting ready to go to school to Buffalo, I don't think, I don't know if you remember that. I remember this or you even really thought that I would ask you about this, but you did something that I think was pretty, pretty cool. And I think a lot of people listening would want to hear some stories about, um, I don't remember the exact way you did it, but you hitchhiked from like, what was it like Vermont to fucking Rochester or something close to that? Like, how, how, oh, like take me back to that. Yeah, what do you remember from not, that? You're getting the timeline mixed up. That was later. That was like a year. That was after at the end of my freshman year of college, I did senior year of high school. Like after I graduated, my brother Matt and I rode our bikes to from Rochester to Montreal. That was, that was the, the, the thing uh, with hitchhikers later. Yeah. I'm familiar with the Montreal thing. And I guess for people who aren't familiar, Hex and I talked about it. On the last episode, the year before that, your brother, you, uh, Colin, who we referenced, and I rode our bikes to the second Syracuse Fest. So uh, cycling yeah. is something we've always been uh, fans of, obviously. Um, but yeah. but even though I'm kind of out of the timeline, we'll, we'll back up. Just kind of give me a couple funny anecdotes from the hitchhiking story now that I've already brought it up, I guess. Oh, man, that was a trip. So that was my... Uh... Freshman year of, no, shit, I'm sorry, it was my sophomore year of uh, college. I finished up, you know, you finished up in like mid-May or whatever for the year. A friend of mine who I got in fight with in Buffalo wanted to do a trip with his friend in Vermont on this trail called the Long Trail. It's like 270 miles and it goes from like the Massachusetts border with Vermont all the way up to the top of Vermont. And so I just went along with these guys and didn't really... The one guy planned it, and the other two of us just went along and didn't really think much about it one way or the other. And, like, we had hardly any food. We hiked, like, we would just hike and then sleep in these lean-tos along the way because this part was along the Appalachian Trail. Um, so, like, 10 days in, I got a, a call home. We finally got to civilization for, like, a day. I called home to see what was up, and it turns out I had been offered a job. So it started in, like, three days or something. So I was like, shit. So I hiked. I hitchhiked back from Killington, Vermont, to Rochester, and uh, just catching rides in rural Vermont was, was a trip because, like, sometimes you catch them real quick, and other times you're waiting like four or five hours and nobody's picked you up. Um, I remember riding with a kid who told me he had stolen the car. Uh, I don't know if that was true or not. <laughs> I rode with like a dude who said he was the assistant principal at a local like high school, and he was drinking beers in the car. Drinking like Coors Light, and he offered him a beer. He's like, "Hey, you want a beer?" <laughs> did you take one of the beers at the time, or? Oh yeah, dude. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Um, I remember riding with a bunch of different random people. Then I got somebody. This guy dropped. This guy was like a uh, forester. He was did like tree management. No forestry management. He was like a real nice guy, or whatever. Kind of quiet. And then at the end of the ride, he's like, towards the end of the ride, he's like, "Yeah, Vermont's pretty." Cool place except for all the pinkos and the queers and i was like oh <laughs> so at one point i think i had like an aol or some name screen name or something it was pinkos and queers uh yeah so then he dropped me off in albany on the highway i got kicked off by the state trooper like came up he's like you can't be up there you kicked me off but i uh i took a bus onto the, the food way you know like on-ramp 
Westchester. So that was a trip. I've hitchhiked a few other times since then in various situ- like adventure situations. But yeah, that was that was fun. But yeah, so getting back to what we were talking about, uh, I had jumped ahead a little bit. You mentioned the Montreal bike thing, which I think is something we should touch on for a second because, again, the cycling thing is really fun. I haven't done like a two-week thing yet. Um, I went to Ithaca this summer, as you and I talked about a little bit. Oh, yeah. But um, I definitely want to hear a little bit about what you guys, what your experience was like on a bike trip, and then I'll chime in when we kind of get into the to, to me and, and uh, Josh and Amy kind of meeting you guys there. Sure, yeah. So we, I had gotten interested in bicycle touring just because they're – I don't know, you know, I've always been in, into weird hobbies and stuff, and there was some guy who was like an eccentric, definitely eccentric, who lived in some place around Rochester who had written, self-published these books about bicycle touring, and he was like a substitute teacher who was just some weirdo, you know, who I ordered the book, and he came and like dropped it off at the house, <laughs> you know, it's like a, like, sent, like, like, a, like, a, like a money order to the P.O. box, and he like came and dropped it off at the house. But he had all these like tips for it. His whole thing was like gorilla camping, he called it. Um, so you basically just find some place that's like a field or private property and try to find a, a house or whatever. They're not going to go and ask if you can sleep there. And most often, more often than not, they'll say yes. Or if it's some space that nobody seems to have claim to it, it doesn't say private property, you just set up your tent and do it. So my brother Matt and I did that, exactly that. Like we literally just go up to like a farmhouse and be like, hey, can we sleep in your field? And they'd say, like, oh, yeah, but the tractor's going to be, you know, plowing at, like, 5 a.m., so <laughs> look out for the lights. Or uh, then we would just, we got really bold because you realize most people, it's kind of like in Fight Club or whatever, it's like most people are not, most people have never been in a fight or whatever they say. Well, most people have never had some random person just camping in, like, a public park. They don't know how to deal with it, you know? So it's like uh, we camped in, like, a soccer field behind a school, and we woke up and the girls were having like summer soccer practice, like running laps outside of our tent. We camped behind like a, an office building where like the picnic tables were for the employees. And we woke up and people were having like a coffee break, you know, like nobody said shit. You know, they just parked like you're, you're in this tent for security. It's like, oh gosh. But they see the tent and the bike and they're just like, eh, okay, just, yeah, you're not, you don't seem threatening. Uh, so we did that and we went all the way up to Montreal and we kind of took our time. Like if I did it now, I'd probably put in a lot more miles per day, but I think we did like 50 miles a day. Um, and then we got up there and we had booked like hostels that we were staying in. I think that's when you guys got up there and met us. Um, and stayed in the hostel. We all stayed in the hostel together, right? So, yeah, I wasn't working that summer, so I hadn't planned. I, I told you guys I wasn't going to come up. And then like last minute, I was like, fuck it. I, I got, I. it was like, I don't think I had an eBay account, but there was, like, some way for me to sell records online at the time, so I sold, like, a couple records to the Charles Bronson LP, probably a couple other ones I knew I could get some money for, and I met you guys up there, and, yeah, we, st- I had never, I don't think I had ever stayed in a hostel, so I was really sketched out by that fact, um, and it looked like, I don't remember, it was, like, some weird dude with a ponytail, not Simon Parry, who we met a couple nights later, who also had a ponytail, but there was some really weird looking dude to me, like, 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 catching us out there and i was like this seems really why can't we stay in a hotel like i was just i was freaked out by it you know and then we met this dude from vancouver which we'll get into in a uh, second Charlie. yeah we met him <laughs> and you guys thought he was cool but again i'm like you know i for somebody who grew up downtown i just never trust anybody so i took all my shit that night out of my pockets like my wallet and everything and lifted up the mattress 
and slept like with all my shit so that nobody could get it or whatever, you know. But yeah, so we were in a hostel in Montreal for like I, I don't remember how many days we were there for, but it had to have been at least two or three, if not four or five. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, but but your your other brother, uh, a, a mutual friend of ours, Amy, and me drove up there from Rochester. Which the fact that like I love riding bikes distances, but the, but at the time I was like, damn, I can't believe these guys are riding their bike all the way here because it took us like six or seven hours to drive there, you know, and then. And we also rode our bikes over the Canadian border, which was hilarious. That's before 9-11 and stuff, obviously. And you go over and they're just like, um, they just look at you funny and they're like, uh, do you have ID? And you give it to them and they're like, uh, all right, you're good to go. You know, and you're just like, you didn't have like a library card at, at the time. And it was just so easy. <clears throat> and we just rode over, you know, the bridge across the, uh, you know, the Thousand Islands over the St. Lawrence River. And bam, you're in Canada. And <laughs> you're just like riding up through, uh, through uh, uh, Ontario into Quebec, and it's just, you know, all rural. Obviously, most of Canada is rural. And then suddenly you come up on the, from Montreal, and you're in this, like, big city, you know, relatively big city. But yeah, that was a pretty sick trip. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting over a little cold. As we were talking about yesterday, uh, we went to that His Hero Is Gone show at this crazy... Like, basically, I think it's the equivalent of what they have in Europe, where it's, like, a squat, like, run by punks. I don't know if it's a squat, exactly, but it's, like, all run by punks, but it's, like, a club. Remember that? It was- I want to say they might have been doing that for many years, too, if they're not still. But, yeah, it was really cool. And, you know, now that I think about it, I brought... This was 1999. When did you... you did, you might it was august of 1999 wasn't it we had the seven inch i just saw on youtube the show is august 8th 99 this is something that i haven't even written down in my notes but we'll we'll talk about this in a minute but you and i put a record out together and i brought that shit with me there because we had them i brought my whole fucking distro to montreal in a car didn't get fucked with at the border like i had my fanzines my records and i traded records with simon pare but yeah it was this whole like community experience where we're all just kind of chilling and uh i remember born dead icons who had dudes from iron they played too his hero's gone uh which we didn't know at the time and i don't think you were as big of a here's heroes gone fan as i was at the time but i was huge into those guys so to me for me to be able to see those guys play was dope but also when i came back home like a week or two later they announced that they were breaking up so that was one of their last shows oh yeah and then tragedy i actually ended up seeing tragedy years later in providence yeah um did they have another band after tragedy I'm not sure. I, I like Tragedy okay. for a little while, and I kind of stopped paying as much attention to those the, dudes. Uh, the sound is similar, but if yeah. you watch that video, I just remember, uh, I think it was Pat Murphy back in Rochester saying that he had seen them play at some fest, and there was a big fan behind them, and every time the fan would like, blow on them, <laughs> just, like, the crusty <laughs> smell would just waft out of the crowd. But that show was amazing because it was just like packed, uh, for one thing. Yeah. But it was also just a club, quote-unquote club, that was run by punks and anarchists and stuff, so it was like, Everybody in there is just like, you know, these older, like, squatter anarchist types who are, like, running the bar and the whole... I don't remember it that clearly because I think we probably got pretty, uh... You guys pretty, did. Pretty, uh, sauced up, but it was... It was definitely um, an awesome show. And, like, yeah, who... Four Dead Icons. There were some uh, other bands, but I can't remember who else played. Probably local. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of, like, your last... I don't want to say last hurrah, but that was like your shit before college, basically. He went to college a few weeks after that. 99. Yeah, so I went to Buffalo State. 
And at that point, we were so immersed, like, in the Buffalo thing. Buffalo seemed cooler than Rochester or whatever for, for some reason. I mean, I guess it's just normal to think that some other place is better or whatever. But um, So I went there, and I also had gotten into the radical the politics, and I was kind of burned out on that because I had done that for, like, maybe two years at that point. And uh, I was just sort of, like, doing it, but but get, reaching my – you know, if you, if you are a part of a group, it's like a tiny handful of people – doing like the socialist propaganda you can't just stay in that forever without you know you, you get burned out so i was kind of i think looking forward to just a sort of a new chapter and uh yeah went to buffalo state met some people there actually funny very esoteric reference but uh anybody that knows who sean lambert is which is probably if anyone listening knows like four people but um he's like this completely uh basically a hermit who lives alone and like just puts out t- I don't know if he does it anymore but for years he put out tapes and fanzines and all kinds of like noise crazy shit he's like this anarchist guy he lived with his dad I think his dad uh, passed away but just just he's like a dishwasher who's like 50 who just does this shit just <laughs> is like obsessive hobby and I remember my first night in Buffalo I think I uh, I rode my bike to the restaurant where he washed dishes which is like this Greek like diner basically and he lived above it, I think. And I went there and I gave him a copy of this record we had put out. <laughs> and it was just a hilarious moment of just like the weirdest. We've been writing letters back and forth for years and just meeting that guy. It was my first night in Buffalo. But um, yeah, so I did college there and just attended a lot of the shows. I mean, at the time in 99, 2000, there was tons of um, underground stuff happening with like basement shows, Custard uh, Street, 99 Custard and there were three or four other basements around within you know like a mile from there that were doing tons of shows i mean international bands like every weekend coming through or national bands coming through yeah that was a great time that's where i saw tragedy for the first time actually was was in a basement in buffalo uh speaking of those guys um but actually yeah that 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 reminds me i referenced this with the montreal thing uh, August of 1999, we put our first record out. To, well, the only record you and I put out together, but like we both ended up putting more out after that. But to kind of backtrack a little bit, uh, it was a split seven inch, and we each uh, had a band that we, we 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 picked on there. So I'll tell kind of my side of the story. I'll let you tell the the band that you kind of did for. So there was a band from Chicago. Uh, well, there was a dude from Chicago named Ryan Durkin that I had kind of. In, in the kind of Sean Lambert aspect, like you would trade tapes to people and you would send them letters and they would send you back a tape as well as like six to eight like random little flyers for like different shit, <laughs> yeah, the flyers. you know? Yeah. yeah. So I would always have like a fucking box or manila envelope full of like these things that I would send back to people, you know? And, and Ryan Dirk and I ended up trading tapes like all the time. Like we would just like he would, you know, we would do tape comps. We would just send each other shit, letters, flyers, whatever. Um, and he was in a band called Kung Fu Rick at the time uh really stupid name um the band that you the band the band the band that you're gonna mention uh pretty stupid name as well too but not 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 quite not quite as stupid but um but anyways um so i can't remember the name of the band but he ended up in like a more well-known band after kung fu i'm gonna try and look it up while you're telling your side of the thing um so anyways i i had been friends with ryan like pen pals with ryan for like a year or two and finally i was like you know I kind of want to step up my game with this record label type thing. And I don't want to just do tapes. I want to do a seven inch. And he was like, yeah, that's cool. And at the time, 
like especially with like spaz and bands like that like you would see a shitload of bands doing like split seven inches you know so i decided to do uh kung fu rick as as the band and, and then i was like you and i were like best friends at the time so you and i kind of decided to do the record together and you had been to california the year before and i'll kind of let you kind of take it from there well, so I've been writing to um, Ski Mask from Buffalo. <laughs> so you could have a whole <laughs> yeah. episode just on that. Actually, you should interview him because he'd be fucking game. He'd be endlessly. I think he lives in Hawaii now or something. But anyway, I have been writing back and forth to him, and he had a ridiculous zine called Riverside Art Scene, which Riverside is like this industrial, like skinny section of Buffalo. So it's like a funny. But it was all collages and shit like that. And then this guy, Dirt from Bad Essence, Trip did a very similar zine. I can't remember what it was called, but it was like those schizophrenic crazy collages and um, really like visually overwhelming and they reminded me of each other so I sent him a copy I think of Riverside Art Scene and I was like oh I think you should break me into this so we started corresponding back and forth and <clears throat> this guy was older he had been into like ever since like bands like Crossed Out and uh, Drop Dead and you know uh, uh, what are they called shoot I'm blanking on Infest? Yeah, Infest, but uh, Pluto- the one, the real Pl- tight one. Uh, no, it'll come to me. But those, okay. ever since those bands, first like 89, 90, 91, he had been like in that scene from the beginning. And they had this crazy scene out in L.A. He literally lived in North Hollywood. And he was a special effects artist in Hollywood movies. He had worked on like, alien movies, all kinds of shit. This guy had like the craziest. So we went out there. My brother and I went out there and stayed with him for a couple. You know, we were out in California anyway. Area. We went to LA for a few days to stay with him. This dude's house was completely insane. It was like something that if if you had kids and you went by this house, you'd like cross the other side of the street and keep them away. <laughs> I'm serious, man. Like insane, and the whole inside of the place was covered floor to ceiling, all the walls with like special effects, shit from movies, like from like Nightmare on Elm Street movies and Alien, all this stuff. And this dude was just this lifer, man. He was just this, like, super nice dude. He took us all around L.A. We had, when it, it was New Year's, actually. New Year's Eve, we went to a party with all these dudes. Uh, this guy, Katz, that used to write reviews for... Um, Flipside. Uh, Flipside and Maximum Rock and Roll and stuff. There was this guy, uh, Mike Thrashhead, who used to write reviews for Flipside back in the day. Uh, this dude who ran the Grand Theft Audio record label that did reissues of like real obscure hardcore bands from back in the day. These guys, it was like this, it was like almost unreal for the 18 year old or whatever, however old I was, me. That was like this all-star cast of just complete weirdos for the rest of society with like have no interest in at all. And we're not celebrities, but if you're like super immersed in obscure hardcore, these people are like super cool. So. The party was like at this drug dealer's house, and I remember we, uh, a friend I won't mention, but just for the sake of propriety, but I'm super into smoking weed, and we bought like an eighth of this super expensive weed that this drug dealer in the house in San Fernando Valley had in a vault, and he actually had to go into this bedroom. It was like out of like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. He had to spin the thing on the vault like a big, you know what I mean, and take this weed out. And then we mailed it with incense through the U.S. mail, which I'm sure is some major federal offense, back to our friend in Rochester. And uh, we got it. And we did not get arrested, which is cool. <coughs> but um, so that was our trip out there. And then we ended up having them as the band. And uh, I am not, in, you know, looking back, 
I would if, if I had to do it over again, I would not pick probably that band because <laughs> they were cool. But I don't know. I'm not sure it stands the test of time, really. They, I don't think you didn't actually. No, I'm positive you didn't. You must have just started the bike trip then, because um, they played here that summer. Kevin Wilcox and I talked about it on his episode. I'm pretty <laughs> yes, sure. Yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> so again, I'm living at my my with my grandma still. Um, and these dudes are on tour, and all of a sudden, we, we have a 7-inch coming out. Split 7-inch is a badass trip in Kung Fu Rick, and we literally had just gotten everything. I have the records and the, the artwork and the and the, the jackets, the sleeves, or what are, the bags. Which the, that, That's actually a funny story, too. I called Zach Aller from Strong Intention, and I was like, yo, can you give me the phone number of the place that I can order bags from so I can get them to send them to me? And he looks it up, and he starts laughing. He's like, dude, the place is called Bags Unlimited, and it's in your city. Like, how do you not know about this? So, yeah. So, yeah, I had all this shit at my house, and uh, it was like a weekday, and the movie Heathers was on. And and those guys are just sitting there in my house. I'm not sure if my grandma was there or not, but we're all just sitting in my grandma's living room, like, folding record jackets and putting the records in the sleeves and everything. And it was Wait, like... Badass trip was at your house? Yeah, because they played they here. They stayed there? They didn't stay there, but they were just chilling there because they wanted the records. And I, and I think... I either you gave me like fifty or hundred records back later because it was your share of the records for them, obviously. Um, okay, yeah. So that because they were playing at Ellison Park later that night, um, <laughs> which that's again like that's funny because they played there, and anybody who's not familiar like Ellison Park, Ellison Park is like a big park and there's like lodges and you'll see families playing like frisbee and walking their dogs and shit. And then we have Bad Acid Trip playing with the Dents at a lodge there. <laughs> and and uh, Dirk, like you were talking about, the singer, is like a real fucking character. And he's got like long hair and a long beard, I think, at the time, or a long goatee. And he just like yeah. starts going up to like the screen windows where all these like little kids and like parents are walking by and like screaming out the window and like in their face and shit. And like at one point, <laughs> I think they were just like standing there watching him or whatever, you know, and it was just like you know it was just crazy you know and, and but yeah that that was like our first record that we put out together and then obviously yeah i don't remember how many more you put out after that i put out a bunch because i ended up doing like you know bigger shit or whatever but yeah yeah that was uh that was a cool experience i mean it was one of those things where um if i had to do it over again i would have definitely taken more time and really love you know like i i uh those guys even at the time, I was like, yeah, they're cool, but it's not really 100% my favorite thing. But they played sort of like a, a version of power, power violence or whatever you want to call it, mixed with real quirky, like circusy stuff, which that's just not really my favorite thing in the world. But it was just cool getting it. Honestly, the coolest thing was just going out and hanging out with those guys in L.A. and having uh, them show us around and then meeting. Like, I remember walking down the street in um, San Fernando Valley, and there's this dude with like, a fur coat. Always stop and start shooting shit with it. It turns out it's one of the guys from System of a Down who they were super close friends with. All right, so yeah, after we did the record and everything, like we were talking about, you ended up going to school to Buffalo. Um, you and I obviously have always kept in real, uh, I wouldn't say close contact, but we've definitely kept in touch like throughout the years. There might have been a couple years where I was kind of doing my hermit thing where we didn't talk as much, but like those first few years, we definitely hung out a lot, but we kind of started veering off into. Like, I started doing more of, like, the Mad Ball, like, New York Hardcore. I was doing more, like, bigger hardcore shows. And you had always kind of been into Grind, but then you started kind of really getting into it. And then you actually kind of ended up singing for a band. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm, I'm going to be missing pieces of the puzzle in between if you want to, you know, connect any other dots. But, like, 
kind of take me into how that band came about. I know the basement scene in Buffalo is pretty strong, so that had something to do with it. But like, how did that all come together? And we'll get to the crazy stories, obviously, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I started. Um, I had already known a lot of people, you know, over the last couple of years before I uh, actually was in Buffalo. I got to know a pretty decent network of people, and there were a couple people that I just had a very peripheral you know, like kind of nod and say what's up kind of relationship or, you know, a little small talk, but uh, didn't know well. And then Randy Concross, who, uh, oh boy, he's a whole other one, uh, a really interesting guy who now lives in Tokyo. I don't know if you know that, but uh, yeah. he's lived there for quite a while. And he's been a partner in several uh, craft beer oriented and Buffalo themed bars in Tokyo, which is kind of, you know, who the hell would have predicted that, you know? But he was a dude who was super active when we were going to shows at like the Mercury Theater and Showplace and Discovery and places like that. And he used to go around and he's like bootleg stuff. Remember he would sell. <laughs> so his girlfriend at the time, Amy, they um, had a band that they were starting when I was, I'm not sure when they started the band, but I saw a couple of their first shows and she was the singer. It was called Project Grizzly. And then I think sophomore year of college, if memory serves, I get a call from Randy, some random night, you know, sophomore year. Being like, oh, I'm sorry, I got to back up a little bit here. So, good friend of mine in college, Justin Kern, who uh, we're we're in touch these days, and he's just a funny motherfucker. If anybody has met Justin, you know he just. I mean, how you 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 actually corresponded with Justin before I even knew him, I think. Yeah, he's a really funny dude, and so we became good friends freshman year at, at Buffalo, Buffalo State. And sophomore year, we ended up rooming together. We like requested to be roommates, so we lived in a suite with four other dudes, and it was fucking chaos, man. It was like Animal House does not do it justice. It was in, it was no way to live, man. I tell you, we would just for fun on a random night, they would just smash a bunch of computers. They would just you know, literally, like, like desktop computers, they would just smash them to bits, leave the parts, all the, like, microprocessors all over the floor. Nobody would clean it up. Uh, we actually had the cops come because someone said, oh, I shot a, a bottle rocket out the window at the grad student apartments across the way. And the cops came in. The freaking floor of the place is covered with beer cans. Like, you couldn't step in a, step in a beer can. This is, like, real bad. So, anyway, I got arrested that night, but uh, it's all really <laughs> anyway, that that whole experience with Justin and those dudes uh, was totally over the top, but Justin was also uh, just a super funny guy and a, a talented musician in his own right. Um, so how did I come up? Oh, so Justin and I got together and decided we wanted to write like a speed metal demo with like fantasy Dungeons and Dragons themed like fantasy lyrics. <laughs> so he wrote a bunch of riffs. He had a friend. We we had one of our other roommate Steve Kerfing. You know who he is, right? Yeah. He played in a bunch of bands. Yeah. He, he played in a band actually. He's a good guy. I used to clash with Steve in our dorm room years over really stupid shit, and I realized later he's a super uh, solid dude, and we, I really like him. But. Uh, Anyway, Steve is a really good drummer, and he played in a bunch of bands. He ended up playing in a band that was kind of like a Harvey Milk or like the Rosa-style band with Aaron uh, from 
was his band from Poland, from uh, Medina. What was that uh, band called? Oh, Fire in the State. Fire in the State. Yeah, yeah. So Aaron's another friend of mine, another good dude. But anyway, these dudes, I'm getting way off track here. So Steve, the drummer, and then we had a friend who played bass and had a studio in Dunkirk, New York, which is outside of Liverpool, you know, near Buffalo. And Justin played the guitar licks, and I sang in a really ridiculous, like, falsetto, screechy voice, all Dungeons and Dragons, you know, epic fantasy lyrics. We did, like, a five-song demo just on some weekend. We were just bored. And so somehow Randy and those dudes... Wait, 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 hold on a second. I don't think you've mentioned what the name of that band was yet. (laughs) That was Rumble Stiltskin. And so, uh, yeah, we did the Rumble Stiltskin demo in Dunkirk. Just on some random weekend, there was nothing to put on. And those dudes somehow heard it. I don't even know if we distributed it very widely. Like, we, I think we passed them around to friends. You know how it is. Like, back in those days, people would just pass it word of mouth. You know, people would dub it themselves and give it to somebody or whatever. So then somehow, a few months after that, I get this call from Randy Carncross saying, like, hey, man, Project Grizzly. So they were called a bunch of different things. I can't remember what they were doing. But they eventually settled on Project Grizzly, which... For anyone not in the know, that's named after a documentary from Canada about a real person, a man who was attacked by a grizzly bear and decided he was going to design a grizzly-proof suit. So he built this, like, huge robotic, like, contraption he could walk in, and the whole movie is him, like, punching the bear up to, to make sure it's really grizzly-proof. So he has, like, bikers beat him with, like, baseball bats outside of, like, a biker bar. He has them swing, like, a huge tree trunk on a chain and, like, knock him over. It's totally insane, but uh, but that was Project Grizzly was the name that we finally settled. They, they finally settled on, and their singer Amy had quit, and she and Randy had broken up. So they just asked me to try out, and I came and did it and jammed. We did a demo in that spring of my sophomore year, so that would have been like two thousand one, I think. Yeah, yeah, because ninety nine I started college, so yeah, two thousand one. And then we just started playing, you know, we played a bunch of shows. I don't know how many we really did. We did a, we did a bunch around Buffalo. We played with a bunch of cool bands. Um, we did a number of weekends where we played with some cool bands. We played with one of my uh, favorite bands at the time, Triple Bastards from Italy. You ever hear that story? I don't think so. Oh, even, yeah. even, even so, go ahead. Yeah, so we played, so at the time, my whole approach was very influenced by like gg allen i was uh or like i was into the band rupture at the time and their their singer andrew aka gus chamber was just like when you talk about being a provocateur and like like fucking with people i took it to like the next level of you know just just attacking people in the audience you know i just run out there and just pull the microphone cord around their neck and like you know just choke them knock them down just punch people just totally nuts um, and again, I disavow all that behavior, horrible, horrible behavior, but whatever. Uh, so at the time I was doing that and we played a show at one point we did a show and we did a couple weekends where we played in Boston. I'm not sure where else we played on those weekends, but we did one with the band daughters. Remember them? And a couple other bigger, well-known bands and we played in Boston and that was whatever nothing really happened then when we came back another time when we played in boston it was in some some sort of like a warehouse which had 
all these boxes piled up against the one wall. That was that was the show of Triple Bastards. And so I'm doing my thing when we're playing and just like pushing people and knocking people over and stuff. And there was a girl that had like a walker, like one of those, uh, what do you call those things? It's like it's got the things on your arm. Braces? Each side has, what is it? Are they braces or that's not, that's yeah, not. like braces on your arm, but it's also like built into a walker. Yeah. So somehow I pushed this girl over, I guess, not even realizing. And people started like, they just tackled me, like this big group of like five or six dudes were like, get the, oh no, before that. They started tearing into the boxes at the back of the thing, and it was some sort of weird hair product that was like for African American hair or something. It was like uh, purple gel. People started just pulling these things out of the boxes and just ripping, <laughs> ripping just gobs of purple gel all around the place. Everything is covered in purple gel. The floor is totally slippery, so like everything is falling down, tackling each other, and like you can't mosh because you just like take one step and you're gonna feel like. So. This girl, I guess they knocked over inadvertently. I didn't even realize. And so they, that was like their cue to like, fuck this guy. Like he attacked a handicapped person. I'm like, dude, I did. I just attacked everybody. I didn't try to attack her, dude. It was just, so they grabbed me and like a human, you know, wall of just like five or six dudes dragged me out, dragged me up the stairs of the place and just throw me like unceremoniously out of the street. Like in Boston, just like, you know, like, like clapping their hands together. Like, <laughs> And then I tried to get back in, and they, like, pushed me back out, and it happened a couple times. And then this girl came out, and she was like, I'm on your side. Like, that wasn't, you didn't, you didn't do anything wrong, like, whatever. So they let us back in so she could go on the microphone and, like, tell the crowd that I was not <laughs> to blame or I don't even know. They started, like, pelting me with, uh, you know, those gob gobs of the purple goo and stuff, just, like, booing me. Like, they wouldn't let I was trying to talk and they wouldn't let me or whatever. So Randy actually had to drive me back. He drove me back to Rochester from Boston that night. Just like, forget it. Like, this is done. He drove me in his personal car. Well, I don't know what the rest of the band did. But he drove me back like six hours, whatever it was, from Boston to Rochester. But that you. Night, and that was pretty funny. But you guys played more shows after that. Like, that wasn't the last show, was it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we didn't, like, break up. They were kind of, it was kind of like the shtick, you know? Like, kind of like uh, Jay said. I, you know, I listened to a lot of your episodes. They're always fun. Jay was saying that Sequentially Death wanted him to be, like, the guy who would go along with, like, their whole shtick and, like, insult people and be a dickhead. They wanted me to do that, but then sometimes I would, like, cross the line and do it too much. You know, so there was that show. Um, oh, man, there was a lot, actually. <laughs> so we did. We did a bunch of shows in Buffalo. We did however many weekends where we do like a three-day thing. We played up in Toronto. You know, uh, um, what's the place across the river from Detroit? Windsor. Uh, we played in, what's the other city that's not far from there? Um, London? Yes, London, Ontario, yes. And there was a cool guy there. There was a haymaker. I can't remember his name. Woody, I think. I never knew any of those dudes put us up but that was a cool venue that was like a like a theater like a little like small theater um we played in well actually one funny story <laughs> that project grizzly we took a little weekend we were supposed to play in pittsburgh at, at the mr roboto project which is like a punk venue there we left on friday and ryan actually we were joking about this guy before ryan uh capaletti capaletti's uh, like a blazer that he owned or something that he like would like just let people borrow to go to shows. We're driving rural Pennsylvania, man. We're like three hours from Buffalo, like an hour from Pittsburgh or something. 
the thing breaks down in the middle of nowhere, man. And it's like the, uh, I think it was the water pump. So we're screwed. I mean, we don't have any money. We're all just like a bunch of screw ups, knuckleheads. And we're at a gas station asking if anybody has like an emergency, you know, a mechanic, like 24 hour mechanic or whatever. And there's a guy there in the gas station. He's like, I would be, I, I think I can help you boys. And we're like, uh, okay, sir. He's like, yeah, I live about a block from here. I, I think, I, I think I got the part at my place. So we actually went there with him and he could be like some total psycho. We don't know. He actually like sat, went there, actually did have the part. And I, I don't know how, how he had the part at his house. He replaced the thing like two hours out there, like swearing, grunting while the sun's going down, fixes the thing for us for nothing. Won't take any money or anything. And he fixed it and sent us on our way. And he was just like this super cool, like rural redneck, not redneck, but you know, just rural dude, like Trump country dude. Did he know you guys were in a band or whatever? Oh yeah. Yeah. We told him, yeah, yeah. We're trying to get to Pittsburgh, whatever. We never made it to Pittsburgh. And you know, that was an aborted thing but we ended up going getting back to buffalo because he replaced the thing but it was just like what are the chances you know you're in a gas station somebody overhears you saying this the probability is so low on a friday night or friday evening you know that somebody could could do this and he has the freaking part it was just incredible so that was almost one of those like you know just serendipitous almost like guardian angel kind of like you couldn't possibly predict that but it happened but uh yeah, so we played show. You know, we we did a tour, a ten day tour, where we did uh, East Coast, down South, um, into the Carolinas and Virginia and the Carolinas, and then we ended up going out to uh, Ohio, played in Columbus, and then the van died on like the last day of the tour. But we had some freaking adventures there, man. There's some definite. <laughs> you can go into some stories if you want. Let me just also say real quick that. My Project Grizzly experience was pretty limited, but I booked one show for you guys in Rochester when you guys, I think you were doing a weekend or some kind of tour with uh, Robot Has Werewolf Hand, maybe? And okay, yeah, maybe. it was you guys and them, and then I had already booked like some hardcore bands, like My Luck and some other bands, so it was kind of like a weird bill. And I don't know if because you and I grew up together and we're good friends, but like you were on pretty good behavior that night. Like, you didn't do anything, like, to destroy anything that yeah. night. Yeah, was that at St. Joe's, the soup kitchen place? That's the other story I'll tell in a second. No, the show I booked was at, like, Analog Shock, that record store that was on South Ave for a little while. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. okay. Yeah, so, so I, you... Yeah, I think that was probably why. It's like I didn't want to mess up your whole thing. Like, I'm not going to bring chaos to the venue when it's, like, my good friend booking it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that sounds bad, but... The other time I saw you guys was at St. Joe's. You were pretty tame that night, too, except um, one of Matt Keith's friends that he grew up with or went to school with, uh, Pete Klinkon, him and I were standing up front, and you had, you were drinking water out of, like, a coffee mug. And when you were done drinking it, like, total Big Lebowski style, you just took the, the fucking mug and just threw it and hit Pete in the fucking forehead. With <laughs> a fucking... I had a 7-inch. I don't know if you're going to mention this or not, but, but, but didn't... You didn't mention his name when you mentioned the California people, but didn't Richard Ramos put out either a 7-inch or a split 7-inch for you guys? Oh, yeah, yeah. So so Project Grizzly had a pretty limited you know, output with recording. We did uh, we did a 7-inch that was... Uh, we did a split 7-inch with Drunken Orgy of Destruction that was, um, I think, our first thing. We did a demo, and then we did that. And then um, Richard Ramos did, I think, a weird limited like 500 press or 200 press or something 
one-sided seven inch of our demo. He had some weird project that he was, I guess he was into Project Grizzly. I think Eric told me, Eric Elman again, name checking him, told me that Richard, he and Richard were on some chat together and he was talking about Buffalo and talking about our band and that I should get in touch or whatever. I remember meeting him in LA. Yeah, he was wearing one of those, the white hats that they wore in the 90s with like the, you know, South Carolina, the Gamecocks. Said Cox. I don't know if he actually had that hat. It was like that kind of hat, a big dirty white hat that like a jock would wear. Uh, anyway, yeah, he was a cool guy. But yeah, he put out the seven inch of the demo, and then we had a. <laughs> we had a recording we did with this guy Gerald in Buffalo, who did a really awesome recording on like eight track, like on tape, that was lost to time. I'm not sure what happened to it. And then we did a demo with Glenn Szymanski, a.k.a. Goat Lord, that was, uh, we had the recording, but it never, we did like CDRs of it, like gave it out to people, but it was it was more like a, another demo, but it was supposed to be a seven inch and never happened. So, uh, yeah, that was pretty much the recorded output of Project Grizzly, unfortunately. What are the stories you want to divulge with now then? <laughs> oh man, okay, well, one particular story that was, I was actually just thinking about throwing the coffee cup at Pete's head. God bless him, Pete. Great kid. Sorry, Pete. Um, I would throw shit into the crowd. I would do a lot of things impulsively, and I, in retrospect, it's really stupid, but it was fun at the time. I painted a sign that said "Kill Yourself." With st- I stenciled the letters and I painted it black and did "Kill Yourself" in white. And we would put that in front of the drum kit. And then sometimes, if like the show was not exciting enough or people weren't like getting into it, I would just take it, like whip it out into the crowd like a frisbee. And it was a piece of plywood, you know, like, so it could really, like, take something spit <laughs> out. And I remember just whipping it out there, and it missed some girl's head by, like, an inch. And, you know, I, I, I'm I, glad that it didn't hit her in the head, but uh, that was really stupid. Um, that was at a skate park, Extreme Wheels, I think it was called in Buffalo. You ever go there? Yeah. Yeah, went there a few times, saw some... You know, not, 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 I didn't see any Project Grizzly shows there, but I definitely went no, there a no. few times. <laughs> Sorry, just cough. Um, yeah, a couple of memories from touring that were fun. Yeah, so we played this venue in Carborough, North Carolina, which is like where Chapel Hill, yeah, I think, I believe <clears throat> North Carolina is in Chapel Hill, right? And Carborough is like the sister town of right over next to it. There's a venue there that was like a, I don't remember it was a decent sized place but it had like a real pro sound system and you know a decent stage and whatnot and so we were the opener for between the buried and me which coincidentally which is really weird my wife works with this dude who's like 35 or whatever who's you know professional blah 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 but his favorite band is is them and he actually will drive like three or four hours to see him and he's super into them he's got multiple t-shirts which is funny but so we opened for those guys, and I don't really remember exactly, but I, I know I destroyed the mic, and the guy gave us pay for it out of our cut for the night. <laughs> it took like a pro mic and just like bashed the hell out of it, like hit people with it, <laughs> crushed it. Um, and he's like, you're going to owe me, you know, 80 bucks or whatever. Like, Fuck you, buddy, who cares? <laughs> but then uh, at some point, I guess I whipped a beer bottle out into the crowd. I don't remember that part, but, you know, at the end of the set, I'm out in some alley behind the bar, behind the club, and 
I think it was the early days of cell phones. I didn't have one, but somebody loaned me one to call somebody, some friend or my girlfriend probably at the time. So I'm talking to her, like, blah, blah, blah. And I realized something's amiss, like something's happening. And there's a little circle of people that gathered around me. And it's like five or six dudes. And kind of like the Boston thing. It's like people ganging up, like five or six dudes. And they're all straight edge, like all dudes with like the camo shorts, you know, and the hoodies and the whatever. And somebody's like, hey. And I'm like, hey, I gotta call you back, all right? And so I get off and I'm like, what's up, guys? And they're like, yo, man, you fucking fucked with our friend earlier. And I'm like, uh, your friend? Is your friend here? Does your friend have anything to say about this? And he's just like, no, man, it wasn't cool. You threw a beer bottle. You almost hit him with it. And I say, just like, but he's not here. You're you're speaking for him. And they're just like, dude, you better fucking say sorry, man. That wasn't cool. And it's all these dudes. And one dude is a dwarf, which I'm totally, I mean, the most cool with that as anybody can get. Like, hey, you're a dwarf. That's fine. Like, that's your, you know, you can't help that. And then they're all like, seriously, motherfucker. They're like, you better say it or whatever. And I just start insulting them one by one. Like, I'm just like, dude, your haircut looks fucking stupid. Like, blah, blah, blah. You're fucking... I go around the circle, like, you know, uh, in Half-Baked, where he's, he's like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you you're cool, fuck you. I did that kind of thing. I'm insulting every person in turn, and then the dwarf is, like, the last one there, and uh, my buddy Adam from the band, they saw this happening. He grabbed, like, a wrench from the from the band and runs over, like, to intervene in case he has to, and he's, he, he's the one who told me this part of it. He's like... Hey, you're talking like that dude, that dude, and you got to the dwarf and didn't say anything. Just like reserve your. <laughs> like you felt bad for the guy or something? Well, I wasn't gonna insult him on something like that he can't, he has no control over. I'm not gonna <laughs> <laughs> mock him for you know a birth thing. So like I insult all the other dudes for all their other bullshit, and then they just fucking screwed, took off. And the other guys from the band came, they just like nothing, no beat down. It was fucking hilarious though. Was there ever any time in the band where you did get beat up, aside from when you kind of got thrown out in Boston or whatever? Which doesn't really sound like you got beat up yeah, that time there either. Was a show. <laughs> there were a couple things. There was a show um, in Buffalo. It was this crazy like dive bar, right? I can't remember the name of the place, but it was an awesome show because it was right on the border of Chickawaga and Buffalo. And it's like total dive bar. It's got like the bills, you know, like that blue, like bills neon thing in the window and people there are just like locals but they had shows with you know punk and hardcore bands or maybe metal bands or whatever but we're playing that show and i'm like pretty much the opposite of what you described i'm like not on my best behavior at all like i'm being a total dick jumping down they had like a pretty decent sized stage i'm like jumping on people and like punching them hitting it with the mic and that kind of stuff and there's some real jack dude who had a t-shirt for Wolfpack, but there are two Wolfpacks. There's the band, they're like a crusty uh, DB type band. And then there's a Wolfpack that were like uh, a white power or like nationalist, some kind of band. I'm not sure. I don't know much about that band, but I know there was the two names. So this dude was like jacked and real tall, like 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, He's got the kind of haircut that it could be like a hardcore guy or it could be like a, you know right wing guy can't really tell you know kind of like the cut short on the side like swoopy and longer on the top so i'm just like dude so i'm jumping in the crowd like just going nuts this guy starts just pummeling me like just just 
knocking me down, like punching me, kicking me, and I'm kind of like, you know, adrenaline, so I don't really notice. I, I just know I'm getting like pummeled, but not really exactly what's happening. So security ends up dragging this dude out. And, you know, I get up or whatever, people are laughing and cheering and stuff. And then uh, afterwards, they let him back in. And he comes up and he's like, hey, man, I didn't, you know, I didn't mean anything by that. I just, I hate when somebody hits me in the nose. He's like, said something like that. Like, if somebody hits me in the nose, it just sets me off. He's like, I don't mind getting, like, pushed around or whatever. But if you hit me with the, in the nose or in the face with the mic or something like that, he's like, I just, just triggers me. It just sets me off. <laughs> Well, it was just hilarious and then i was sitting at the bar afterwards all these people started coming up just like doug white came up and it was like just doug white is a cool guy you you uh should, you haven't interviewed him right no but i'm going to we've talked about it oh yeah doug white is yeah. awesome i remember actually going with justin <clears throat> who we mentioned before to watchmen in my freshman year or whatever just to, to master some tracks that they had done with Fizz Ants, his old band and doug's just the coolest dude just totally chill and then um, at that show, Doug came up and he was like, hey, man, this is fucking awesome. Like, you're being sweet. Like, <laughs> what are you into? What are your influences? Like, this is, I remember him and like, a couple other old like metal guys from Buffalo came up and just like, just totally went shoot the shit. And that was pretty sweet. Uh, when else did I have? Oh, um, well, I guess it's not really Project Grizzly related. So like, I'm trying to think of people like groups of people beating me up. Um <laughs> No, I mean, it was more like, you know, most of the time the vibe was, like, reciprocal. Where yeah. Were into it. One person used to beat the shit out of me when I would play it would be um, uh, Glenn Szymanski, a.k.a. Goat Lord. He, he's a fucking awesome dude also, and vegan for many years, and super talented musician, whatever. But when Project is when we would play live, he would totally take a license to just beat the crap out of me. Like, just, he'd do, like all kinds of crazy like he'd jump up in the air and kick me with both legs and just like punch me in the head like super hard (laughs) i remember thinking because in the moment you don't really notice too much but like i'd be like wow he's really really going to town (laughs) jesus yeah we had some fun touring uh things i mean it was just uh it was just like kind of like the stand fast you know murphy's law issue with the van i remember with our um band that we had on that Project Grizzly tour with, with, uh, it was with um, oh shoot not Fire in the State oh, Abusing the Word Abusing the Word yeah that was the band that was uh, that was Aaron and those guys band after Fire in the State but um, we broke down in Ohio after playing Columbus on the way back on the through on the uh, on 90 I think the drivetrain like fell out of the thing on the highway. Jesus. So we had to pull over like emergency, whatever. And it was just it's like a fitting end of that tour. It was just total mechanical failure, you know, and just stranded by the side of the road. So yeah, that was interesting. After you graduated from Buffalo, you moved to Providence, uh, which I would come there. I would say, what was it like once a year or twice a year? I, Cause I had a buddy. Yeah. Yeah. You came. Yeah. You did come several years. Yeah. So you lived in Providence for quite a while, though. That had to have been at least a decade, right? Uh, yeah, I think I lived there for like 12 years, maybe. 12, uh, let's see. Yeah, I think maybe even more. Yeah, but more than a decade, yeah. So obviously 
Rochester and Buffalo have a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences. But then going from Buffalo to Providence, which is only like maybe what eight hours, it's still yeah. you have you have a pretty a pretty good scene there. But it had to have been a little bit different than somebody you know used to live in in Buffalo and Rochester their whole life. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean one of the big things is when you're like twenty three or twenty four or whatever. I, I, go to a new place and you basically don't know anybody in the scene there. Um, you don't, it's hard to like make your entrance and meet people that way because you're kind of the creepy older, I mean, for lack of a better way of saying it, you're a little bit older, you know, than the kids that are really super pumped on it. And it's, I don't know. It's just weird. It's awkward. It's like when you're, when you're 16, 17, 18, and you start to build this network of friends and acquaintances that you know through the scene, that's kind of organic and natural and it just happens the way we both experienced it but yeah so providence was i had a couple good friends there and and my girlfriend at the time but the scene there is different the scene there is much more like based in like artsy stuff like noise like you know lightning bolt is a big band that came out of providence and they're not really noise they're more like noise rock but they're those guys are like art students who really into specific aesthetics of like wrestling and and video games and stuff like that so they, they have like a the whole visual thing where they wear the wrestling masks the mexican mexican uh, style masks and their whole thing was um they were all like comic book artists and stuff on the side and then so the, the whole thing there was a little bit tainted by that stuff so you know fat day who we did we do that show together or did I do that? Or? Uh, so you booked them and actually I'm kind of surprised I didn't put that in the notes too. Cause that's, yeah, that was it, yeah. um, I've talked to a few people on different episodes on here as you've heard about them, but yeah, they, you and Matt booked them together in 1997 or maybe even no 98, 98, the summer of 98. Okay, I think it was 98. Yeah. And then I booked them like two years later and then I booked them again a couple years after that too. Okay. So those guys, anybody who has heard them, their sound was really influential on the Providence thing. They're from Cambridge, Mass, and those two scenes kind of like an interplay. So I think that they were very influential, even on like Lightning Bolt. If you listen to their sound, I think it's a fat day sound, basically. Um, so that's definitely cool. I'm into it, but it was just weird moving there at that age and that stage in life. And I was doing, I was working a lot then. So I went to shows, you know, a bunch in Providence, but I got to know, um, they have a really good record store, Armageddon Shop, which is run by Ben from Drop Dead. I would go there all the time. Actually, a funny uh, anecdote about that was Ian, who was the uh, drummer for Project Grizzly, he's, he had Drop Dead stayed at his house, or he hung out with them or something when they played in Providence. And he said, oh, yeah, I've got this friend, Ben, who lives in Providence, and he says that he goes to your shop or whatever, and Ben from Armageddon Shop was like, oh, yeah, uh, is he, like, a really normal-looking dude and wears, like, normal clothes and, like, like work clothes and stuff and comes in and buys, like, tons of obscure, <laughs> crazy avant-garde shit and, like, extreme music or whatever, but he's wearing, like, a, you know, button-down work shirt and khakis. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's him. So I used to go in there all the time and talk to that dude. He's a super nice guy and uh, super has a super cool business where he doesn't just do, like, hardcore and punk and metal, but he does, like, avant-garde experimental music you know zines books 
just all kinds of stuff and he's got a really good business model and um but yeah i got to know him a little bit some of the other people there and went to a lot of big shows man i saw i saw um systematic death from japan did a reunion tour or whatever they played at asp20 which is the venue in providence i saw tragedy there i saw um weird stuff that's not necessarily like hardcore i saw the guy from can the prog rock the um, kraut rock band from germany in the 70s their original singer this japanese guy i can't remember his name but he did a solo thing there i saw plastic people of the universe who are a crazy czech band from czech republic from the 60s and 70s who were like under communism they had this underground band it was just like defied the government and did this thing they did like a, there were these old hippies like 60 year old like post-communist hippies that did a show at ace 20 so yeah i saw a lot of cool stuff there but it was always sort of like a little bit on the outside you know where they just it's not the same it's not the same as when you're a kid and you just are immersed in it you know it's just weird now you're living in norfolk hanging out with the suppression guys or yeah are they from here I can't remember. We talked about this before. I know they're from somewhere in Virginia. Dan, uh, I think they're from Richmond. I, we'd have to ask Dan Haig. He would definitely know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but now you're living yeah, in Norfolk. Yeah. Are you are you down here? This is a crazy place. This is actually a uh, huge military town. So it's got tons of navy. It's actually I think the biggest naval installation in the country is here. So like 50 percent of the population are navy, which is crazy to think about. And. Um, yeah, it's just different, man. It's, there are people here that are, like, punk and hardcore. There's actually a store that's, like, a mile from my house. It's called Skinny's Records. That's this, it's been open since 87, I think. It's run by this crusty, like, asshole, like, uh, basically a comic book guy from Simpsons, like, pretty much that guy. And uh, I guess he's a total jerk from what everybody says, but... I've been in there like a couple times. It's got tons of vinyl, which is crazy. He's got like he's got like Geezum records and like uh, it's just crazy like Japanese hardcore and shit. You would not think that somebody in a military town that you know would have enough. But there's not really a so now as you said like shows are not happening. It's pretty much just whatever holding pattern. I mean, till I honestly think like shows live music and live sports with like full participation full crowd will be the last thing to come back because you just can't i mean i don't know i don't know how you do it and say it's quote unquote safe um liability wise so it's weird but yeah here there's like uh there are shows i mean i saw um i went to see some random indie band called elvis depressedly at this place around the corner from my house that i could walk to they're kind of like, uh, I don't know, just, just indie, weird, lo-fi indie band. Um, and we went to see this guy, uh, Robin Hitchcock, who's sort of like a psychedelic, like neo-psychedelic, weird songwriter at this library here, public library. They served beer and stuff. It was so weird. If you were going to put together like a dream show of like four to six bands, I know someone like you... <laughs> It could be like fucking a bunch of death metal bands, or you know what I mean. It doesn't. It could be any, any era, any any genre. You know, um, you you saw one group that would be on mine. I know it wouldn't be on yours, but I never got to see Gangstar. I'm pretty sure you saw them. Uh, oh on one yeah, of those. I did see Gangstar. Yeah. yeah, 
Um, but yeah, I won't. I won't take any shine away from your list though. Who would you put on the uh, on the Ben Keefe uh, dream bill? Oh man, that's tough. Uh, I think I would put on uh, circa nineteen sixty seven Pink Floyd um, with Sid before he went totally nuts with just the Space Jam stuff. Um, yeah, they'd be on there. I think I would put on. This is a really random one, but I think I would put on. Uh, Oh shit! Um, I think I would put on Mob Forty Seven, dude. Just a total classic DV, nineteen eighty four, you know, Swedish. Just because I wonder, like, what the fuck are those guys like? Uh, I know uh, somebody posted a video of the guy from Mob Forty Seven, like now, doing a video of his like guitar tone, how he did it. But it would be awesome to see those guys back in like yeah, eighty four. All right, so. I think I would do, man, that's a tough one. Because I know people have narrowed it down to, like, say, oh, make it easier by doing. <clears throat> I think I would like to see um, one of those oi or pub rock bands from the <laughs> 70s, like those English bands. Like Sham 69 or whatever. What's that? Like Sham 69 or one of those bands. Yeah, like Sham 69 or Cockney Rejects or, like, or like uh, Peter and the Test Tube Babies, <laughs> one of those bands that were just like, you know, they got like the fucking soccer hooligans as their fans. Yeah. All right, so you said four to six out of three. So what did I say? I, I never would have, uh, I would never have expected you to put an oi band on a list like those. <laughs> well, I'm not a huge oi fan, but just in terms of the energy of the show. Yeah, that's true. It's going to be fun, you know? Yeah. Uh, dude, got to be like Napalm Death circa 88 or something, like circa like Scum. Reject. Yeah. French all. Pink Floyd. Uh, Pink Floyd, yeah. dude. I'm totally British uh centric. What was it? What did I say? Oh uh Mob forty seven was on there too. That's still Europe, so you're all Europe so far then, right? Yeah, okay, I gotta get a yeah, okay, uh Oh, and I have to say, dude, um Okay, Ben from Drop Time talk about early noise shows from Japanese bands, um Masana, you know, was that the yeah. I think it was Masana or Merzbaugh who played at Brown University on a stage in like 91 or something with some incredibly beautiful Japanese girl totally naked just sitting on a chair in the middle of the thing with like this jet engine noise just like <laughs> <laughs> And she's just sitting there naked? I guess. It's just nothing like that. I mean, it was just kind of like uh, it's like she looks like a, just a perfect like model completely naked in a chair with just the noise. So that'd be cool. So I'm gonna go with that one. So, I there's not a dream show because they're like my favorite bands. That would just be like the coolest experience of, you know, live music. Those those four things. I don't really have too much to add. I'm gonna get into the closing comments in a second. But there's somebody who was coming to my mind a few times during this interview that I feel like, I, I definitely want to kind of sh- throw him a shout out and you know rest in peace. It it, it the, when I first started thinking about him was that Spaz show. It was the first time we saw him there. We thought he was somebody's dad. It was like 1997. Here's this like mid 40s dude like wearing a watch like like you are now like and he kept and, and, and he and it's like who the fuck is this guy you know, and um, I don't remember when we found out that it was Imant, um, but he he was from Hamilton, and it was like I had I had been trading like live uh, tapes with like people through Maximum Rock and Roll and shit, and I had a Gorilla Biscuits tape from Buffalo that I had gotten in like 97 or 98, like around the time I met him. 
uh, maybe a year before I met him actually. And I'm listening to it though, like a, you know, a little while after we met him and I'm listening to it and I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, I think he mom's recorded this show, this Buffalo show that Gorilla Biscuits played. <laughs> so I ended up talking to him about it the next time I saw him. I'm like, yo, hey, mom's, did you record a Gorilla Biscuits in Buffalo back in the day? And he was like, yeah, I did. And we ended up talking about it and he gave me like the actual tape or whatever. And I ended up like, you know, trading with some buddies and stuff. And, you know, I, we've talked about him at length over the years. Uh, he was just a great guy, you know, and the kind of music we're talking about now, like, he would be able to talk about this kind of shit for fucking hours. And he would go to other countries for fucking record record buying trips. He went yeah, to Japan yeah, he would, yeah. just to buy records, you know. So uh, just a great guy. I, I would put him at the top of the list of, you know, some of the greatest people we've met in, like, hardcore and punk. So Yeah, he was truly uh, exceptional. I mean, you would not – anybody younger listening to this, you, you have no idea. This is, like, to walk into a room, a show this guy was at. He literally he was older than forties. He was like he was like in his mid fifties, I would say. Did but, he die at like well, I don't know how old he was. Yeah, he either way. Totally white hair. Yeah. Glasses, like wire rim, not not like hip glasses at all, like wire rim glasses and dressed like a dad. Yeah. And he was he had a British nobody knows much of I mean, people that I know have not known much about his background. He had a, like a British accent or maybe South African or something. Yeah, and Mons Cronin, and he was had an insane record collection, encyclopedic knowledge of all kinds of music, not just punk and hardcore, but like everything. Super into wrestling, I think. Yep. And yeah, just like a total, I mean, the guy was amazing. And yeah, he used to, uh, and you could just talk to him for hours. Yeah, he was, and it was really sad. He died of uh, cancer, I think, uh, kind of suddenly, right? Any any, uh, closing comments or anything else you want to add or anything we didn't touch on or anything? Uh, no, I would just say for uh, anybody that's younger than us, uh, definitely cherish the uh, friendships and stuff because they, they fall off as the years go by and do the family thing. You know, those friendships kind of fall to the wayside, and I would say that those are really important, you know, for your own well-being and just, cher- you know, nurture those friendships as much as you can and uh, go Bills. That wraps up episode 24. I want to give a big shout out to Ben Keith for doing this interview with me, as well as waiting the long month that it took me to edit this interview. As always, I want to give a special thanks to my family for all your support with all these efforts. Uh, we got a lot of episodes coming up soon. There won't be this long of a break again, I can assure you. Um, I'm not sure you know, what exactly the next couple episodes are going to entail, but I have a lot of guests uh, coming up here. So stay tuned to EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And fuck Trump.